I'm going to propose something here, Jeff, and I don't want you to be angry. This could be the divine will that we are not supposed to have a podcast. In a few minutes, my buzzer is going to go off, and I'm going to buzz in God. He's going to walk in and he's like, seriously, guys, did you not get the hint? Congratulations, Internet. Whether by accident or on purpose, you are currently listening to the latest episode of Q the Day, the podcast talking about everything worth watching, avoiding, and talking about in the realms of film and TV and, Jeff... Uh, in this digital age, the plethora of ways in which there are to watch them. That was good. It's almost <laughs> like we've been doing a podcast for a while. I'm kind of proud of us. We have and we haven't, so I guess that works. Yes. Um, but yes, this is Cue the Day, and splitting up the introduction duties are me, Jim Rohner, and... And me, Jeff Grush. Um, and we are going to be your, your hosts as we navigate through this, uh, this world of streaming media, of declining right. physical media, and the, ever- the ever-evolving <laughs> digital landscape. Is there, is there something humorous you'd like to share with the rest of the class? Jeff? Yeah, I, I like how you're talking about physical media like it's been diagnosed with a disease. <laughs> well, it, it kind of has, Jeff. It really has. It and really it, has. I, and, I, and I have to say... Um, I should note that as for a guy who's on a podcast where all we talk about is movies you can stream, until this week I had a television with no HDMI, mm-hmm. and now I have a new television with HDMI, mm-hmm. um, and this is uh, very exciting to me. And I feel like I had a response to what you said in that wrap-up, and I forgot about it while I was looking into your gorgeous eyes, Jim. <laughs> That's Jim eating a pretzel. Uh, if you haven't been able to tell already, this is our first podcast of 2014, so we're slightly rusty. Yes, we, um, we and and literally like we have been beset by tragedy every time we tried to record mm-hmm. in the previous like week and a half. I guess it's been something like that because uh, Jim was in Mexico mm-hmm. and we had all our holiday stuff. Um, so the last time you heard from us was basically uh, talking to Tyler Smith. Yeah, the, around the, the holidays, the Merry yeah. Christmas episode, and yes, yeah. as Jeff said, uh, there was some traveling, there were some infirmities. Jeff, you were sick for a while. <laughs> I, I, I both fell in the ice and then got the flu. So well, you fell on ice. You didn't fall in ice. Well, yeah, I didn't become like one on a molecular level with the ice. It's but, true, of course. Yeah, um, Jeff did not suddenly become Bobby Drake, otherwise known as Iceman <laughs> from the X Men. Um, and, and even for this one, we, we had been put off the, uh, the putting off the recording of this one because we had been trying to get Gavin right. Mevius, a friend of the show from KGB cast. And I actually counted today. Actually, we've been trying to get four different guests. Hasn't worked. <laughs> so here we are, just yeah. the two of so us. So sorry, folks. You just get uh, Jeff and I tonight. <laughs> That's okay. Hope you're okay with that. No, it's been a while, so. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and for those of you who uh, may be listening for the first time and are confused because we've been making a lot of inside jokes and having weird yes. banter, which doesn't mean anything to you. Q the Day is, like I said, this is a film and TV podcast, but we're focusing more on the, the realm of streaming media and the declining physical media, as Jeff liked to snicker at before. Right. But obviously, people are watching um, more stuff on streaming on their mobile devices. They're not really going to the movies anymore, not really buying DVDs. Or... That's what I meant to say. What? I meant to say that, for some reason, Blu-rays don't look as good as streaming content on my television, and I can't figure out why. I almost think there's too much detail in Blu-rays. There's something wrong with your eyes, I think. It may be my eyes. Yeah. But anyway, 
uh, yeah. So we uh, we handle that kind of stuff. Yeah, we do, and we we yeah. do that by dividing our, our episode into three sections. We have uh, section one, all the news which is fit to stream, mm-hmm. in which Jeff and I will talk about a, a, a relevant news item or two or a couple. Um, tonight we only got one, but which is relevant to this idea of the ever evolving digital landscape, streaming media, what's going on with uh, digital services, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. We got a uh, section two is weapons of counterproduction, which uh, Jeff and I will be talking a little bit about some of the stuff we've been watching the past week, mm-hmm. how we've been watching. If you're curious, where you can find it, right? Um, as well as some of the uh, the new titles on Netflix, instant streaming, Amazon, Hulu, uh, you know, all the stuff in the past week. Well, because this, you know, we haven't recorded for a while, we're going to expand it a little bit past the last week. That's right. Um, pretty much everything I'd say since uh, since the new year. Yeah, and um, there's actually been so many things since the new year that we're probably going to shovel off a lot of it to a vulture list, but we'll talk about the things that interest us, I right. think. Yeah. Um, and then we're going to wrap it up with uh, section three, the self-titled Cue the Day section, right. in which uh, we'll talk a little bit more detail about a... Uh, not necessarily a relevant or timely topic, but one which has been on our minds that we want to talk uh, and right. really get, you know, really sink our teeth into. Yeah. Uh, and this one was actually inspired a, a couple months ago because the Village Voice had a new article, kind of revisiting the whole idea of like, hey, R. Kelly is a scumbag, <laughs> and yet people really love his new album and have right. kind of forgotten the things he's done. This has been um, resurrected a bit in recent days because of the recent Golden Globes. Uh, they had a, a tribute to Woody Allen and. Uh, there was not a very positive reaction from Mia Farrow, obviously. Absolutely, his, his and, and the, the, his, uh, his son, Ronan Farrow. Yeah. Um, yes, purported son. Yes. Um, they were not too happy about the tribute because of some accusations of, right. of child molestation from the 1990s. Exactly. And this got us thinking just about this idea of the separation between the artist and the art. Right. Um, how do we deal with it? Does it? Should it affect us? How does it affect us? And or that, more crudely, like, can we appreciate art by scumbags? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. So, we're going to talk a little bit more uh, about that later in the yeah. show. And of course, any titles that we talk about in great detail, uh, we're not only going to, you know, if we can't tell you audibly here on the show, we're going to be able to find it. Check out our show notes, qtdpodcast.com, where not only can you listen to the episode, but we'll have links to where pretty much any streaming service on where you can find those titles. Yeah. If we don't have links there, it just can't be streamed. It just can't happen. It just can't happen, guys. <laughs> Um, guys, co- guys, get over it. And, uh, you know, if you're listening to the show and like it, certainly go and check us out on Facebook. Yes. Facebook.com slash Q the Day. That's Q-U-E-U-E. Um, Twitter.com slash Q the Day. Um, and... New things. New things. This is all... I, I had nothing to do with this. This is all Jeff. I really... I, well, I had a lot of time to not do the podcast, so I did a couple things. <laughs> One of them was we have an email address, which Jim has been hounding me about. Oh, right. And also on the last episode, I think he said Jim set it... Uh, Jeff set it up by the next time. So I did. Okay. And it's, uh, it's, it's Jeff and Jim at QTDpodcast.com. Um, Jeff I, I, with a G. Thank you. G-E-O-F-F. That's right, because we like to be difficult with all our spellings, yeah. apparently. Yeah. Uh, Jeff and Jim at QTDpodcast.com. Um, I only put my name first because it reminded me of Jules and Jim that way. So you should know okay, that. Okay, I see what you did there. You see, I, that wasn't just a weird ego thing. Yeah, so G off and Jim at QTDpodcast.com. Right. We are also, despite the fact that, we are, that you know, we're on SoundCloud... We are on SoundCloud. Um, but you can still download us to the iTunes store. Go to the yes, iTunes store, iTunes subscribe, store. give us a ranking. If you search for Q the Day anywhere, we're probably there, except for Instagram. And I know we made a joke about it, but I kind of want to start an Instagram. That's all you. I'm, I, I will have no part of that. That's fine. Um, if, if all your Instagram is food and your cats, I'm going to punch you in the face. No, no, it would be movie-related, but we'll see. Anyway, um, and the last way to contact us is uh, a new voicemail we set up yeah. with a Google Voice number. So you can actually call us at 347-774-1783. 
Alternatively, because they let you choose your number on mm-hmm. Google Voice, it's 347-774-1QTD. Look at you. Yeah. <laughs> and now, Jeff, because I'm sure some people out there are going to be curious, can right. people sext to that number? You know they probably could, but I don't want to encourage that. <laughs> I do, on the other hand. Because so. I think we do get all texts to that number as well as emails in our QTD podcast uh, email box. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, so feel free to abuse that, because then we at least know people are listening. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And just uh, on, a, on a personal note before we get in, I wanted to, to point something uh, yeah. out to you. Yeah. Um, if you're... We're, obviously, Jeff and I are busy podcasters. We don't have time to... To keep up with all the work of you plebeians, I know. I don't know if you've experienced this. Right. I haven't been reading as much as I recently have. I've, I've seen you Instagram books, so I feel like you have been reading, right? Yeah. Well, I've I've been rereading. Uh, I'm currently going through uh, George R. R. Martin's um, Game of Thrones series again. That's right. I don't get to read as much as I do. So somebody, um, a friend of mine, pointed me in the direction of the, it's actually like a book podcast. Oh, really? Yeah. It, oh, cool. Awesome. Well, I, book podcast, I guess. It's called. Cleverly, just we're you know I'm drawn to cleverly titled podcasts. So this one's called Cooking the Books. Cooking the Books. It's like a young married couple. Um, I think they're like they're in Minnesota, somewhere in the Midwest. Right. They moved out there. Um, they're Who not, does that? I, I, well, and that, I think that's why they did it because there's like nothing to do out there, so they started okay. a kind of little like book review podcast. That's awesome. It's like it's like a, each episode is about like five minutes. That's cool. So it gets in, it gets out, and it does what it has to do. The first episode is on um. Uh, the turn of the screw. Okay. So um, I will. It's, it's not James. Not James Joyce. He did Ulysses, right? He might have done that one too. I mean, writers don't just Henry write James. one book. Henry, Henry James. Henry James. Turn of the screw. Henry James Joyce, of course. <laughs> they're they're pretty much the same person. You know, I think there's actually. Uh, it's funny. I thought for a minute you were going to talk about. It. I think there somebody came out with like a Netflix for books. Oh really? Yeah, where you pay a monthly fee and download whatever you want to your phone. So, uh, yeah. I so, say, I feel like we could make it relevant to the podcast because yeah. you can buy books online. And I think you can also, with an Amazon Prime membership, you can get free certain books for free from Amazon Prime right. if you have a Kindle, which I do. Are books physical media? Oh, that's a good... That's, is, that an, is that an episode topic we just, we just discussed? <laughs> we, just but, we may have to invite on people from that podcast then. So yeah, we'll see. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. Well, and they, they actually have a voicemail too. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. that's awesome. They're, and that, I think... I was very impressed with that until <coughs> you developed a, a phone number. So we you thought it was going to cost money, and I was like, eh, I don't think know. so. But and uh, our friends at KGB Cast have one. That's basically where I got the idea, well. since they seem to do it pretty easily. So, um, but uh, Jeff and I were were kind of lamenting the fact that it, it almost seemed like our technology was going to die before the episode began. There's in we're on borrowed time. Here. Yeah, <laughs> it's which is funny because cooking the books in recent episodes, there's they, I don't know, I don't know if their equipment is bad or if they live in a haunted house or something. But there's some. <laughs> There's some weird things that have been going on on that show, so right. I don't know. If you want to revisit, it's kind of... Are you saying they're in the last segment of the first VHS? Uh, wait, the, the Radio Silence one? Right. The, the Devil's Do guys that were missing because it took me too long to get here. <laughs> right. That'd be pretty awesome. Yeah. But, uh, and I'll, and I'll, I'll j- just like all the titles that we're listening to, I'll link to Cooking the Books in the podcast. No, it's in awesome. The, in the show notes. Please link to it. And I like listening to book podcasts because I don't read enough... And if I'm not going to read, I may as well listen to other people who read. Right. Yeah. So I mean, it, it's it, it's it's taken a weird turn recently, but maybe they'll they'll write the ship. I don't know. Awesome. Uh, but uh, I think is there any other any, any other business, Jeff? I think that's all the business I. Oh, uh, the last thing I have because I can't stop talking about how great my television is. I think I'm going to buy a Chromecast soon. I'm because I want HBO Go. 
and I don't want to spend 100 bucks for an Apple TV or replace my Xbox until I really want to. So I think I'm going to get a Chromecast, so look out for that world. I may have... Supreme Court news. Um, update here in, uh, in section one, all the news that's fit to stream. Um, we've been spending a little bit too much time talking about Netflix specifically recently, so we wanted to kind of get right. out of there and realize that, hey, there's other stuff going on outside of Netflix. Reed yeah. Hastings doesn't own us. Um, but Barry Dillon Not for might. $8 a month, man. <laughs> um, so some of you uh, um, listeners to our classic episodes... <coughs> Uh, Maybe familiar with the the company called Aereo. Yes. Um, Aereo was... I think we did like two or three news sections at some point on Aereo. Yeah, I think so. Um, Yeah. But uh, if you've only been listening since uh, since our reboot on episode one, we'll catch up a little bit. Right. Aereo is a streaming service that's being offered by um, a former studio mogul, uh, Barry Diller. And essentially what Aereo is, it's a, it's a little kind of individual antenna. It's a service right. you can sign up for. I think it's about $10 a month. Well, it's really a mass antenna when you think of it. They're, they're like antenna arrays. Right. So basically, yeah, yeah. They, uh, you, you sign up to have a little tiny antenna in mm-hmm. this big group of other huge amounts of little tiny antennas. Mm-hmm. And they basically say, okay, so you have this little antenna and you can get television shows with it and we're just going to record them for you. Yeah. And you can use it like a DVR, and maybe you can cut the cord and still get your programming, right. even your live programming. Um, and 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 uh, and and everyone said no, basically. <laughs> so the the um, the the how isn't so much important as much as the what. Um, right. And basically, in I think it's it's not many markets. It's I think New York, Boston, right? Cincinnati will be rolling out soon, right. from what I've read. Uh, but you can spend about ten dollars a month. You'll get this little physical antenna, and what you can essentially do. Is stream um, not you know not just later, but you can stream live TV from major networks from That's your right. CBS, from your NBC, from Fox, from certain right. local channels as well. I think there's some Spanish channels, some sports channels on there, and in a very modern way with like apps and a nice website. Yeah, not, not only can you stream it live through mobile devices, yeah. but you can have a DVR set up as right. well. Now the way they're doing it is because, as Jess said, they're kind of you know pulling from the li- from the live feed, which is. Right. I guess flying through the air like magical birds. Right, and which the FCC says is free. The FCC says it's free. The networks that are offering this programming say that this is copyrighted material. And not only does the FCC say this is free, it's supposed to be part of the charter of the cable networks that they are providing this for free. Mm-hmm. Not to be too much on Aereo's side, but really. Well, yeah. and I mean, not to be too much on Aereo's side, but so far, courts have been on Aereo's side. Which is kind of surprising to there, me. There's, yeah. a lot of, uh, there's a lot of district courts. I think there's been through five court cases, and yeah. all of which so far have been held up in Aereo's favor, mm-hmm. saying no... This is fine. And I believe right. they've been escaping under um, a copyright law from, I think it's the 80s. About taping? Yeah. Wh- uh, yeah. Which is essentially because when, people might not know this, when VCRs came out, the studios wanted to sue because you they were Because they were going to destroy Hollywood. Because, yeah. oh, you know, we can, they can record our material and they can right. distribute amongst themselves. And essentially, it, the ruling was essentially something like, well, it's almost, each VCR just kind of allows for kind of private screenings, in exactly. a sense. And so that's why Aereo is time saying... Time shifting. I think this is the time shifting concept which yeah. basically created then but <laughs> as so a legal concept. Aereo was using this essentially 30-year-old ruling right. saying that our antennas allow for each and every subscriber to have these individual kind of private screenings. They're not distributing the material. Right. You know, they're just having their own private screening of it. Um, and so far, every single court has said, yep, that's about right. But 
Now this case is being taken to what should be the only court that matters in this country, the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. Um, and this news article comes from um, The New Yorker. In the show notes, I entitled it Shit Getting Real with Aereo. The actual title is Aereo, the Supreme Court, and the Future of TV. And we'll link to it, like I said, in the show yes. notes. You can read this yourself. It's a good little recap of what happened and what's going on now. Yeah, because essentially now, you know, it seems almost kind of natural. Like, oh, if, you know, the networks keep appealing, it's eventually going to have to go to the Supreme right. Court. But the fact that it's there is important for one reason. The Supreme Court only really gets cases if there has been conflicting rulings earlier. Absolutely. This has not been the case. Everyone's been on board with Aereo. Right. But the implication being that this, and this may sound hyperbolic, this ruling could affect the future of TV. Yes. Um, and that's like, I wish that, I think, what was his name, Don LaFontaine was still alive, because like, the future of TV. The future of TV. All rests on the Supreme Court case, because essentially... Now it seems like, you know, Ariel's shenanigans are kind of, um, let's be honest, the whole, the whole idea that they're kind of escaping through this 30-year-old copyright law, it, it, you know, it seems not fully legit. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I believe that it is now being um, the, the, um, one, of the, 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 one, of the, one of the judges, uh, Judge Denny Chin, has described um, uh, called Aereo's technology a Rube Goldberg-like contrivance to take advantage of legal loopholes. And it really I does... I think that's unfair. Yeah. Can but... I say why I think that's unfair? Absolutely, Jeff. Um, first, I'm going to start with an analogy mm. about young Jeff. Okay. When, when there was a little Jeff who mm-hmm. had an SNES, he liked to play Madden a lot, right, for his SNES. All right. Now, my, his brother at the time, who's still his brother, <laughs> not just at the time... Okay. Um, now, my brother, like, is not a sports guy at all. He, right. like, doesn't play sports video games. But I got him to play Madden with me. Right. And my brother, within about an hour of playing Madden with me, figured out a play-to-play in Madden that I had no way of defeating. Mm. It was perfect. I don't know what it was. I wish I knew. But he would beat me constantly in Madden. And I thought this was unfair. Mm. The truth is, this was not unfair, because this was the game. <laughs> Because games are like that, and sometimes you find loopholes and you deal with it. And I have a problem with all this because I feel like all of these broadcast companies are a little too comfortable in their monopolies on our airwaves, literally. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they can't realize that, like, this is not a technicality they're taking advantage of. It's not like they're saying they have arrays of antennas, and it's really just one antenna that they're recording to one source and sending to everybody. Mm -hmm. They have arrays of antennas. It literally is technically the same thing as you recording off your own antenna. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think they keep winning, because it's not like they're lying about that. And I think the perspective of the broadcasters is almost like, well, yeah, they're right, you know? Um, I think the, the appropriate uh, Big Lebowski quote would be, you know, you're right, but you're still an asshole. Uh, you could say that about Aereo, because mm-hmm. they are taking advantage of the law. And, and bef- while you were talking about all this, I was thinking, like, oh, what Aereo really is is, like, a lawsuit in search of a product, because it seems clear that they're not really launched yet. Right. And if anything, I wonder if Barry Diller even cares about Aereo at all. I really think that because this guy was so disruptive in the cable years and started USA Networks and all these other things, and and even now uh, owns uh, or at least leads IAC, which owns Vimeo and College Humor and all this, like, I think he's a a guy that really likes upsetting, like, homogenies and, 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 you know, like, entrenched interests, right? 
And I really feel like this is kind of a fuck you to all these people. <laughs> I really do. And, and I, I'm sure he sees like, oh, once people figure out how to make the cord cutters get television in a modern way, they'll make a lot of money off that, sure. Mm-hmm. But this also feels like he knows this is for the future of TV. And we've ran quotes from him before in other news stories where yeah. he basically says as much. Mm-hmm. Like, he gets a kick out of this. It's kind of old. And, and Barry Diller is not this young upstart no, 20 no, or 30-something. No, no. Barry Diller is like a, a studio <laughs> guy. He's in his yeah. 70s. And so yeah. he's he's the old affluent white guy that you think right. should be on the side of the studios. You'd think he'd be the guy that said, what is the, well, you know, what's this internet thing? But right. he's been on t- ahead of the curve like for his whole life, it seems like. Yeah. You know? um, and so, but let's step back a little bit. So, where does the conflict come from? For people who may not have right, been right. following Ariel at all, yeah. who haven't even heard about it until right now, here's where the problem is. So, yeah. the way the the way that nowadays networks make a vast majority of their money is through retransmission fees, That's right. um, which essentially is um, cable companies and um, television stations have to pay. Um, to to transmit this signal from these networks, you know, in order in order to to broadcast out these shows. So, right. You know, if you want to watch um the new if you want to watch New Girl on your local Fox affiliate, the local Fox affiliate has to pay the retransmission fee, um, in order to be able to broadcast that signal out to you so that you can catch it and then so you can watch it. Right. Um, what's going on here is that Aereo is not paying that retransmission fee. Right. Aereo is just taking that signal into its antenna directly, kind of cutting out the whole middleman. And bringing the, 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 the signal directly to you. Exactly. Now, the networks are very upset about this. Yeah. The networks are so upset about this because it's like, listen, if this catches on, st- uh, stations and, and cable companies aren't going to be paying our retransmission fees. You know, la- uh, sometime last year, there was this um, huge hullabaloo between Time Warner Cable and CBS because they were renegotiating those retransmission right. fees. CBS obviously wanted more money. Yeah, I didn't have any CBS because I'm on Time Warner for like, what, was it a month? It was a long time. Yeah. And Time Warner Cable didn't want to pay those increased fees. And we yeah. saw this with Dish Network too and then how you couldn't watch AMC on Dish yeah, Network absolutely. for a long time absolutely. because AMC was like, you need to pay more money if you want our signal. If you want our, right. our beloved digital seed, you are going to have to pay us more. And eventually, <laughs> if you could have seen the arm motion, guys, you would have loved it. And eventually, you know, the cable companies always pretty much give in to that. Well, they have to. Yeah. yeah. Um, because the, yeah. the less, you know, if there's no product there to watch, then people aren't going to be tuning in. Right. Um, so the networks are saying, if you circumvent this retransmission fees, you're taking a huge chunk of our revenue out of us. But here's why they're full of shit. Because most of them give away most of their content. Most of them on their own websites stream full episodes of all their shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, on Hulu, on laptops, even without Hulu Plus, you can see most of their shows. Yeah. And sure, they're getting some advertising revenue from that. But they're also getting revenue advertising for the people who watch through Aereo. Mm-hmm. They're still watching the ads. So I, I, I think the complaint here is that they would like to have their cake and eat it too. And I think Aereo might really ultimately win this one because it really seems like the modern equivalent of the VHS thing. Because in hindsight, the VHS thing is like, well, why wouldn't I be able to record stuff off my own television, right? Sure. You know, and, and I feel like if that is such a, you know, well, yeah, idea, I feel like this is another one of those things where they may really be trying to control their content too much. And it's not like... Aereo is going and taking those antenna versions of the episodes and cutting out the commercials and selling them individually. Right. <laughs> you know? Because if, if you're watching it live, you're still going to be watching the ads. Right. But then I, I guess... And if you DVR it, 
Well, you could have a DVR at home too, and they didn't. They decided to stop going after TiVo and go, and then they built their own DVRs in their cable companies. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of feel like this is just like a little bit of sour grapes. Like, oh, Aereo thought of this first, mm-hmm. and it just the problem is, is it messes with their agenda for those recarriage fees, like you're talking about. Well, you know? and here's the thing: it certainly seems like Aereo is in a good spot. Yeah, and listen, they've won every battle they fought. They are they are the Rob Stark of of this legal field. I would so like far. their lawyers. If I ever have any trouble, I want to call the Aereo lawyers. Right. Um, <laughs> that phone call is probably going to just cost you a whole lot, Jeff. Here's the problem that could, that could arise if Aereo actually wins. Right. If Aereo actually wins, the networks could essentially, in a way, take their ball and go home. And what that means is, it seems like they're not above the idea of. Well, if you want our content, then we are going to start making subscription channels just to get our content. So, for instance, if you're... I, think that's, I don't think they'll ever do that. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't put it past greedy assholes to continue to be greedy I don't assholes. think all of them would do it. Well, I no. think maybe one, one of them would say, like, fuck it, but I don't know. Anyway, well, but, continue. But what that means is, so, like, um, if you're a huge MLB fan, right. you can subscribe to the MLB network, and that's the only way you can get access to all those games. Right, right. If Aerial wins, hey, keep pulling down these, you know, the, these signals without retransmission fees... Then you know maybe a Fox or CBS can say, well then fuck it. If you want to watch Glee, if you want to watch The New Girl, if you want to watch How I Met Your Mother, you're going to have to now subscribe to our channel, right? Pay to watch this stuff because we're not going to send out this free broadcast anymore. True. That could be a terrible situation. And we have talked about them threatening that, like literally saying they would do that in yeah. the past. I think was it CBS or Fox said they might do that. I think it might have been both of them. Might have been both of them. Here's why I don't think that's going to happen. Okay. I think if they tried to do that, A, it would be a massive uh, public relations disaster. Mm. Because all they would run on local news at night would be grandmothers with their antennas who can't watch Big Bang Theory or whatever. <laughs> or elementary, you mm. know? That's all you would see. And, it would, it would, and they would say it would really hurt them. Mm. Second of all, I think... It doesn't really make sense for them to do that because I think, literally, I think the government would come after them for it. Mm-hmm. And I think, it, I think the FCC would make it difficult for them to do that because they have reached the level they're at now and the size they're at now because of public infrastructure. Mm-hmm. You know, when Barack Obama said, you didn't build that. He meant this kind of thing. <laughs> well, it, it's actually, and it's the public that networks are uh, citing in the sense of, like, you can't do this because one thing this article says is that networks are saying that if Aerial wins, then the studios will lose one of their network, uh, their primary sources of revenue, which will in turn endanger public interest programming. They point out that people rely on broadcast television during emergencies and that the local news plays a key role in maintaining an, quote, informed citizenry. Um, but this is what I don't get, though. Why, why would Aereo retransmitting their content have any effect on their carriage fees for cable networks, for satellite? What does it have to do? Like, one doesn't have anything to do with the other when it comes down to it. Um. If anything, like, you'd think it would be the cable networks bringing this lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Because those, all of these broadcast networks can survive with Aereo existing. Yeah. They don't, they could even, if anything, I think they were stupid to bring all these lawsuits because no one would know about Aereo 
if they weren't getting sued all the time. You're, you're absolutely correct. We've only brought up Aereo because of the lawsuits. Yeah. I mean, I think we brought up once the first time. Right, because it like, seemed so cool. Hey, yeah. Here's this cool idea. But even it was like, it was this cool idea that was being, yeah. being met with controversy. Right. So if you were listening to this episode and you were hearing about Aereo for the first time, it is only because the networks are suing Aereo. Right. And now the, the crazy M. Night Shyamalan twist in this whole thing is that despite it being brought to the Supreme Court, it might still not be settled. Because, as we all know, the Supreme Court has an uneven amount of people, so that way nothing can end in a tie. Um, This could potentially end in a tie, because one of the judges, Justice Alito, has, quote, recused himself from the petition because he owns stock in Disney and ABC. (laughs) So he's a little bit biased (laughs) on this matter. How is that so, even possible? So he's excused himself, which means we could get a 4-4 vote split. I think it's actually split. recused himself. Recused himself. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, when did this become cue the grammar, Jeff? <laughs> or cue the Supreme Court. <laughs> cue the justice. <laughs> cue TJ. That sounds like a daytime TV show I might watch. We're going to have to have a network of cue those now. We'll have cue the justice. Uh, cue the fashion. Yeah. Um, <laughs> geez. Um but so that essentially means that this, this court case could somehow end in a tie. And I don't know what that looks like because yeah. does that happen in the Supreme Court? Um, but one, one thing I forgot to mention earlier is that this is kind of a big deal. The Supreme Court, there are 300-something cases brought to them every year. They only take about 75. So this is true. this is one that they've decided to take. And as we said, depending on how this goes, does have a big effect on how things could be moving forward. Oh, yeah. Um, but only if the networks decide to be dicks. <laughs> well, I mean, it, clearly it shows they already have decided that. That's their no, line. No, I mean, they're life. still making threats, though. I mean, they've made threats before. They made threats during the whole Time Warner thing, you mm-hmm. know? And I, I really think that, like, as much as they bring up the nuclear option, they must know how stupid that would be. Maybe NBC could pull it off because they have such a small audience at this point. They're basically a cable network. Or NBC. I mean, maybe AMC will take NBC's airwaves because they have so many more viewers. I want to see more people in charge of networks like um, John Landgraf over at FX. Absolutely. Who, as, as relevant to this one news item I posted on Facebook earlier, has said that one important thing for, for TV networks to do is for their live airing to also stream it as well at the yes. same time. He thinks that's the only way that these pl- people can survive. Or the pre- I think it was the president of HBO, or at least HBO Digital, like today or yesterday, said, we don't care about people sharing HBO Go passwords yeah, I saw because that. we're in the business of creating addicts. Which is so brilliant and honest, but it's true. Hmm. If you create people that are hooked on your shows... They will find ways to most likely pay for your shows, you know? And, and if you limit your shows, then people will just stop watching your network. Or literally, they'll say, oh, okay, I can't get it here. I'm going to torrent it. I'm going to steal it. Or I'm going to go to my friend's house and watch it. So I, I, I don't think this kind of hardball... Th- this kind of hardball strikes me as like when the music companies tried to play hardball with Apple or Napster, or Kazaa, or whatever. Like, it seemed at first like, oh, they're so big, of course they're going to win. And then it's like, oh, wait a minute, you're, how many discs did you sell this year? Oh, Apple is the number one retailer of music in the world now. So you know how quickly that happened? Mm -hmm. And there must be at least, like, three or four people at each of these companies in a high enough position to say, listen, guys, (laughs) listen, uh, we see the way things are going, and you can't be idiots about this. You can say idiotic things, but don't actually do idiotic things. I, I count on it. I count on this being fine for Aereo. And, and if anything, I count on Aereo maybe even kind of fading into the background once this is all over. Who knows? Yeah. Because we don't really have numbers on how big 
the audience of cord cutters is because mm -hmm. it's hard to prove a negative, <laughs> you know? How do you prove how many people don't have cable but use other things, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, I don't know. I have a good feeling Ariel's going to win it. And I don't think they're going to ruin television. And any network that decided to screw everything up by taking their shit off the air, I would be fine with losing <laughs> when it comes down to it. Yeah. I mean, at this point, like, how many shows do you really watch on network television? Well, I don't watch any because I don't have... Exactly, but even then, if you were to stream on Netflix, like, how many of the shows you like are on network television? What do we got? We got Hannibal. Mm -hmm. On network television, you mean? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of new stuff. Well, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I'm a big fan Brooklyn of. Brooklyn Nine-Nine is real good. Um, but even then, it's like, oh, handful? Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. And if I want to watch live sports, I can go to a bar. You got a bar downstairs you can watch live sports at. I, I mean, come on. Well, and one thing that Aereo has in their favor, and we should probably be wrapping this Absolutely. new section up, but one thing Aereo has in their favor is that, as rude as it sounds, people don't know Aereo exists. People don't know this right. podcast exists. People don't know about this. So when, if a cable company or a TV network pulls its content... What are they going to say? We'll blame it on Aerial. People don't know what Aerial is. They're just going to look to the TV company and say, give me back my programming. <laughs> exactly. And, so yeah. I wouldn't worry about it. Um, so that's the Aerial show. Um, I'm not worried either, Jeff, but I am very curious to see where this goes. Oh, no. It's, it's fascinating, but I think this will be one of those cases like the time-shifting case with VHS where it's like, well, that one set up a precedent, and this will set up a precedent for the next 20 or 30 years. Yeah. You know? um, so we'll see how it works out. But And, and you know... Keep tuning in to, to uh, Cue the Day because we're going to keep on top of Aereo 2 and see where this develops. Right. So. We've become suddenly relevant. <laughs> yes, yes. It's about time. Relevance. <laughs> All right. And now let's, um, let's ruin that goodwill by moving into uh, Section 2. Yeah, let's, let's hear people listen to us. What? Weapons of counterproduction time, Jeff. Section 2. Of course, Section 2. Um, what have we been watching in the past week? Or a little bit more than a yeah, week. Yeah, it's been, it's been like uh, about a month. It's been a while. Yeah. I'll be honest with you, not much. Well, you, you were busy. You I've were been in, kind of busy. You were in Mexico. I was in Mexico. Yeah. Um, I was going to say Tijuana, but I was not there. <laughs> Carmen del Playa. Right. Um, but, and then it's just, I've, been, I've been busy recently, so I, I mean, before you got here, I was watching... Justified, which I'm not going to talk about, but right. I should say, if you have Amazon Prime, watch you have no reason to not be watching Justified. And, you know, if you're going to be honest with yourself, uh, it is ending next season. Yeah. So if you do want to wait for it to be complete so you can binge it, you could, but I think that's missing out on probably the best show on television but right you, now. But if you already have an Amazon Prime because, oh, absolutely. You're, because you like it, yeah. getting two-day shipping, right. the first four seasons are free on Amazon Prime. Go for it. Um, and I actually just purchased the, the season pass on Vudu, so... Awesome. It airs on Tuesday, every Wednesday. I can watch the new episodes. Only cost me thirty bucks. Right. Some of the best money I ever spent, Jeff. Um, but, but you that, come here not to talk about Justified. You are correct. It's like you're my co-host and you read the show notes ahead of time. <laughs> no. Um, what I'm going to talk about is a late Christmas gift, or not? A, yeah, it was a, a late Christmas gift I got. Cool. For my old roommate, um, we used to get a, we used to buy each other gag gifts all the time. <coughs> the reason he owns a I remember this the, friend yeah. yeah the reason he owns the Criterion edition of Antichrist is because I bought it for him the reason I used to own the Criterion edition of Solo is because he bought it for me I like that what your ideas of jokes are shows how what turtle, total nerds you guys are <laughs> like ooh Solo right <laughs> 
That's that's the uh, Pasolini one that's uh, too hard to watch, right? Yeah, the, the Pierre Paolo Pasolini film that uh, after it was released a few weeks later, he was murdered. <laughs> okay. Um, I did know a guy at, at, at Vaster that said that was his favorite film, but I believe that was him being contrarian. Okay. I, I hope you weren't friends with him. <laughs> no, he was very obnoxious. Okay. Was it Noah Baumbach? No. Was it Jonas Coron? No. Okay. No, it was a guy, though, that uh, in, in his youth was a semi-professional magician. And that I basically made fun of once by, I found a picture of him in Magic Camp, and he was part of the radio station, and I printed it out and put it on the bulletin board. <laughs> so I got back at him for saying Solo is his favorite movie, but as I though, probably lost a little of myself. Yeah, <laughs> as though him liking Solo was an insult to you somehow. No, the insult. Anyway. anyway, anyway, we've gotten, we've gotten wildly <laughs> off track already. Um, and like that, that story's on the record. Though. But no, the, this um, this Christmas this Christmas present that I got was uh, the Blu-ray uh, copy of John Carpenter's They Live. Fantastic. Um, a movie which I recently described to a friend as a great movie wrapped around a shitty movie. That's a really good description. <laughs> um, they live. So, it, and basically, a John Carpenter movie. Well, I would say The Thing is just straight-up excellent. Oh, yeah. And Halloween is straight-up excellent in right. my mind. But most of John Carpenter's catalog is... But I'd say They Live is a good, probably, uh, entryway into where he can go wrong and right at the same time. Yeah, it, it, it's, it is kind of unusual. Um, yeah. I had actually... Before I watched it, I actually only seen it once before, but I saw oh, wow. it and I'm like, this is a great movie. Yeah. So I was very excited to see it again. Um, it's a great Blu-ray transfer. That's cool. um, I don't remember enough about the first one to kind of really be able to make a difference, but if you go to uh, Blu-ray.com, they have some, some right. great things to say about the transfer. Yeah, it's not something I remember as like being the most visually like jam-packed movie uh, as far as like colors and textures and stuff. Right. But what's there is like really cool design, especially you know all the signs and stuff and the they live vision. Well, and, and it's one of those um, it's one of those films where as cliched as that has it kind of become, like Los Angeles is kind of a character right. in the film. Um, but they live in case you haven't seen it, and yeah. if you haven't, please go out and see it. You should absolutely see it. Um, I, I like I said, I watched it on Blu-ray. It's it's available streaming pretty much everywhere. It's not on Netflix, unfortunately, but it's even on Redbox Instant. It's not oh, on wow. release, but cool. it's on Redbox Instant. It's on Amazon. It's on Vudu. Pretty much every, any streaming platform with the exception right. of Netflix. So please go and watch this movie. Um, came out in, um, in the, the mid-1980s. Yes. Very heavy political satire. Oh, yeah. But essentially what happens is um, uh, a character by the name of Nada, he's never actually named, but played by, um, <laughs> quote, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Mm-hmm. This every man kind of walks into town, he's out of work, um, and, and eventually kind of... I was going to say, you may know, modern audiences may know Rowdy Rowdy Piper as the wrestler on Always, Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> he basically pay, plays the parody of the Mickey Rourke character in The Wrestler, right. and he's shown up a few times. So this is Rowdy Rowdy Piper, oh. who was an actual wrestler, and was in They Live. Yeah, uh, but Rowdy Rowdy Piper walks into town, um, a man with no name, no backstory. That's right. Um, very Western in that sense, and it kind of has this, uh, you know, this, this uh, guy kind of wandering into town, he's got no background. Um, in this kind of almost desolate area, because he does end up kind of uh, he does end up settling down in sort of like um, a, a, a poor town. Uh, yeah a shanty town a poor economic neighborhood yeah. gets some job doing construction work um, and eventually you know figures out uh, that there's this this church across the street who is broadcasting this kind of pirate signal talking right. about you know uh, mind control and you know subliminal messaging and stumbles upon these sunglasses which. 
when put on, show him how the world really is, and not in the sense of existentially, but in the sense of everything is pretty much a subliminal message. Right. Um, billboards, TV programs, uh, and all laid down by this alien race, which has been here for generations. Right, and integrated into all levels of society. Right, uh, essentially... Um, trying to placate and subjugate people by getting them to consume and you know obey uh, obey exactly that's the big thing if you know who the uh, if you know who the the graffiti artist shepherd fairy right, is right exactly he had his, a big stencil about his big that, yeah. obey thing came from john carpenter's they live yeah. um so billboards magazines tv programs politicians you know, and not everybody, but there are certainly alien forces within here. And these it's like all high level. They're not really the poor people, right? You know, there is a very clear shot at Ronald Reagan. Yes, um, in the movie, clearly John Carpenter's not a fan of Reaganomics, right? Um, but this alien race who has been living amongst humans, um, probably for you know generations and generations. Yeah, it's left vague. The yeah. actual. It's one of the things I like about the movie is the actual backstory of the aliens and all that stuff really isn't ever explained. Well, and I think the implications that they've been here for as long as humans have been right. here, kind of, huh. okay. uh, kind of um, weaving them down this path of like of of being sheep and of not questioning authority right. and of living living a consumer's based life so that they can they can you know be lulled into this false sense of not security but lulled into this false sense of um. I complacency? Can be, yeah, complacency. I can be happy with the things that I own and that right. kind of thing. You know, whatever advertising is shoving down my throat. Um, and, and these glasses allow him to see these subliminal messages, these billboards, these aliens. Um, and essentially, he, you know, he, uh, he joins this rebellion against, against these forces. And, that, and that's, right. that's for the most part. Uh, and so you can see where, where the political satire comes in, especially because this kind of shit is a lot more relevant now, oh yeah, probably more relevant now than it was in the 1980s when this came out. And, I would buy that. Yeah. And like I said, you know, the 80s were Reaganomics, and that was kind of um, where the the start of these these mindless action films, these consumer driven, like let's just give the people what they right. want. That's where, in terms of mass media, this kind of stuff really started picking up steam. Um, but nowadays, you certainly have um, you know documentaries like uh, Zeitgeist, the movie, who are kind of talking about the, the whole idea is this. The reason we have American Idols, the reason we have all this advertising, the right. reason we have um, targeted advertising, everything so easy, is to like is so that you are satisfied and satiated by things being so easy, um, so consumer driven that like you know as long as we have what we want, as long as we can live vicariously through this reality TV program, we're we're gonna be fine. You know we're gonna be happy. We're not gonna question right. what what comes before us because like the sheep that we are. Yeah, and this sounds a whole lot like a friend that we have. Um, but and so on that on that one sense, that's where the great film comes in. That's where because it's this evergreen um, social economic political message. Um, it's it's equal parts kind of dark and hilarious. The way that the film ends on that one, on, on that real shot, if you remember it, mm-hmm. um, is is fantastic. The, Tell us about the fight scene. The, <laughs> but it's a shitty movie too, because, well, for one, Rowdy Rowdy Piper is the lead, and it kind of when you first see it, you think, okay, a professional wrestler. Maybe this is something like the studio was pushing it on him in the sense of like, hey, here's a guy, here's a mainstream figure who's at right. the peak of his career. And listen, I mean, we have it nowadays. We have The Rock in movies. We have Batista in movies. We have John well, Cena I starring know. in movies. But Rowdy Rowdy Piper's line readings are amazing. Well, and, and here's the thing. So you think maybe the studio was like, hey, we need, we need someone that, that, that yeah. 
people recognize as a star to kind of draw in a new audience. Right. No, not the case. John Carpenter wanted Rowdy Roddy Piper as his lead because he said that there was a, a kind of everyday working man quality about him. Absolutely. Maybe he didn't screen test him beforehand because Rowdy Roddy Piper, despite the fact that he was a wrestler, and wrestling a lot of times is improvisational acting. You have to stay in a character at all times, really. You have to think Are you trying to feet. tell me wrestling's fake? Come on, don't be that guy, Jeff. Don't. <laughs> you really hurt Jim's feelings. Because now you're making me think of that, that um, David Arquette movie, and now I'm upset. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Let's, let's just forget about all that. <laughs> okay, but... But yeah. Um, Roddy Roddy Piper. Roddy Roddy Piper. Um, but John Carpenter wanted this guy. And, yeah. and, and he, from what I understand, a lot of his line readings and one-liners were him improvising. Awesome. Including... The bubblegum line? The, the now iconic, <sighs> I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. Which he says in the strangest way too. It's like all the all those lines. It's like I, I I think that Arnold Schwarzenegger, despite his language problems, uh, I think he became famous because of his line readings because mm-hmm. they were really funny and really direct. And I think he's actually a better actor than he gets credit for no, in a lot of ways. Uh, but Roddy Roddy Piper, I think the reason he's so funny in that movie is because like you're like no other actor would read these lines this way. <laughs> and so someone might be hearing that and thinking, okay, maybe maybe that ex- that line exists within a context I'm not seeing because I haven't seen the film. No, that's false. All. The context is he's walking down the street with a shotgun. He just he walks into from, a bank, right? Doesn't he walk into a bank? With he, he's, he's walking. He's strolling down the street with a shotgun that he just stole from the two police officers. He just beat the shit out of. Walks into a bank. Just says that nobody addresses him or even looks at him. He says that and just starts shooting people, and that's all he does. That is the context, and it's so weird. Oh yeah. And eventually, what happens is he's try. Um, his buddy is played by Keith David, who is also in the thing, who is right. excellent in the thing, who's an excellent actor. Yeah. Um, and Keith David is a guy. He's like, listen, <coughs> I, I got a wife and I got kids. I can't be. I, I can't risk this job. So don't shake the boat. Right. Um, but Roddy Roddy Piper wants to shake the boat because there are aliens and he wants to convince people that there are aliens. And he found the sunglasses. And he found the sunglasses. So, all, listen, all he wants is his friend to know that life is not as it seems. And to try on the sunglasses. It's like, Jeff, you know, if I came to you tomorrow, I was like, <coughs> hey, Jeff, I, you know, if all I said was, hey, try on these sunglasses. I'd probably try on the sunglasses. You'd probably try them on, right? Because you're a sensible human being. <laughs> In the world of John Carpenter's they, um, they Live, instead of trying on the sunglasses... Keith David gets involved in a six-minute fight sequence in an alley with Rowdy Roddy Piper. He acts as if Rowdy Roddy Piper asked him to blow him. <laughs> it's and, like, I know I'm not going to put on the sunglasses. That's and, ridiculous. And you have to think that at some point, and, and, the, and it was originally supposed to be a 30-second fight sequence, but then these two guys rehearsed this uh, and, and choreographed this for three weeks, and John Carpenter is so impressed, he kept the entire thing in the film. So I'm not even kidding you. A six-minute fight sequence in which neither of them stopped to think like, in which Keith David doesn't stop and think like, wow, this must really be important to you that you are continuing getting the shit kicked out of you. And Rowdy Ryder Piper never ever stops to think like, okay, maybe he really doesn't want to try these glasses on. But instead they just keep going with a whole lot of choreographed wrestling moves in there. It's also, it's also like really charitable to call it choreographed. Because it literally feels like they just kept the cameras rolling and it's like, okay, we're just going to keep on kind of swinging. And, and there's, there's a weird... Uh, and I think it's actually been replicated like move for move in South Park. Oh, really? And maybe even, I think there was another show too. I think that the episode Cripple Fight of South Park has like a, a shot for shot recreation mm-hmm. of that fight from They Live. And, and there's a weird... 
and I might get this this word wrong, verisimilitude. Verisimilitude. Yeah, no, you're very close. To in that fight because they they occasionally stop to kind of like they're out of breath because they've been fighting for a long time, which would happen in real life. But then they continue with this absurd I fight, know, and then they drag it out and they <laughs> run this way and they pull them. Out. It's, it's so crazy. And you're not and like you you're not sure like okay, I'm laughing. Is that intentional or right. is, or is this supposed to be serious? And so I still don't know. And the film kind of stumbles in that sense. Like, oh, yeah. There's some serious moments and there's some not so serious moments. And I'm not sure if that's intentional. Yeah. Um, to the film's credit, it doesn't so much take away from the overall theme or right. the overall message behind it, which really says a whole lot. I think it is ultimately a comedy, though, considering especially what the last shot is. Yeah. Like, I, I think on balance, mm-hmm. it's m- supposed to be funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we want it to not be funny because it's a really interesting high concept that you'd almost rather see that movie done straight. Right. But you don't get that with this movie. Well, and Carpenter's not a guy who does outright comedy. Right. He's a guy that is stuck in genre filmmaking. He's a guy that made his name in horror with right. Halloween and who is a big fan of, of Howard Hawks, who is a genre filmmaker himself. Mm. Um, and so it's kind of... It's kind of crazy. It's kind of weird. There's some overacting at, at bits. There's some parts that, like I said, are exist outside of a contest which makes any sense. Um, but it does have that really strong um, political message, um, socioeconomic message, which is something which, like I said, it, it is arguably even more relevant today. But there's also some touches that, that prove to me at least, that John Carpenter is a good filmmaker. Right. Um, he, he doesn't... I was having a discussion with a friend of mine where, like, you can almost kind of put him and De Palma on the same mm. level in guys who really kind of worked a lot in kind of B-movie and schlock and genre in a way, right. but also tried to mix that with, like, a higher calling, with an art. And they, they both had yeah. um, influences in directors who were considered masters. I mean, De Palma was a huge disciple of Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. Carpenter was a huge disciple of Howard Hawks. Right. Um, and you can see that from watching both of their films. Oh, yeah. And despite the fact that there's, you know, that They Live takes place in this L.A. cityscape, like I said, there's kind of a western feel to it. Rowdy yeah. Rowdy Piper like wanders into town. You could almost kind of imagine that there's like a tumbleweed going by. When oh yeah, and then in. the shanty town has the feeling of like a small western town. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The, the the dusty you know kind of yeah, desert yeah. place, and um, and even in the score, which once again is a score that John Carpenter himself um, has has included. Um, there's a blues riff to it, but there's like kind of a, a oh, yeah, really yeah. consistent bass line with, a, with almost kind of what sounds like that, that harmonica feel, which is kind yeah, of yeah. reminiscent of the Western Absolutely. genre. Um, and, and like I said, he's a guy, he's got, he's got no background. You don't know anything about him. He's just like Clint Eastwood. He is the man with no name. Yeah. He is credited as Nada, <coughs> but nobody ever calls him anything. Yeah, um, and, and I really I I like that, and especially his use of um his use of wide angle lenses and his use of yeah, wide yeah. angle shots, um, and he's got some really beautiful shot composition in this as well. Um, so it is it is a is a, a great movie that's wrapped around just like some weird shitty moments in it. You have to let it you you have to like really let it take you. Mm-hmm. I think. It's one of those movies. It's like it's not gonna win you over. You need to go with it. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple sections that may win you over, but in general, like you really have to be in the mood for it. And if you want to hate it, you'll find plenty to hate. 
<laughs> yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. if you really, if you're one of those people that really like wants to take something down, you can take down They Live. It's, it's one of those things where I could see how Carpenter fans would cite this as a reason why he's great and people hate Carpenter and <laughs> cite it as a reason that they hate him. And I actually found, uh, there, was a, um, there was a book my brother got a couple years ago that Jonathan Lethem wrote about They Live, which I should actually probably try to find and lend to you because you'd really like it. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Lethem wrote Fortress of Solitude. He's one of those like Brooklyn hipster writers that everybody likes. Okay. Uh, but he's very well respected, and he's a really good writer, and he wrote uh, a little like, pocketbook about They Live that's great, and kind of about all the implications of all the cultural stuff and political stuff in They Live. Yeah, and, and you, you gave it to me in the show notes, and I'll include this on the show notes for the yeah. website as well, that um, it, it's this little article from Salon. Yeah. Um, they Live, Jonathan Lethem Explains a Cult Classic. Yeah. And it's funny, when I first saw it, I kind of missed it. I thought it said Jonathan DeMay Explains a Cult Classic. I'm like, that's going to be pretty awesome. <laughs> and, and I'll link to it, and you guys can read it. Um, some of it is kind of... Highfalutin, I think. Oh, it's very highfalutin. And not yeah, so yeah, like, yeah, and you'll read it and be like, I don't, I don't see that at all. I don't see all. that at all. Yeah. Um, but there but, is. But guys, if you didn't go to film school, that's most film writing. Most academic film writing is like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true, and, and this this certainly fits. Certainly fits into that. Yeah. Um, but it, it did a and because he he does too explain or not so much explain but <coughs> talks a bit about the six minutes fight sequence. You're just like, I don't. He, he explained what happened, right? but I don't know if he necessarily made me appreciate it or not appreciate right. it any further. I, I don't think he, yeah, I don't know if he quite interprets that one right. That's, um, that's They Live, <coughs> like I said, available practically everywhere on streaming services with the exception of Netflix. Um, it's on cable a lot, too. It's all, is it? like, I see it on cable a lot. Hmm. So, you, you can watch it. You um, can find They Live. Also, something I like to point out, just a little informational tidbit. Yeah. Um, the church... That is kind of the the center of the, re- right, the revolution, right. if you will, where, where the broadcast is coming from, where the sunglasses are coming from, is an Episcopal church, huh. which is just fun for me because I'm a confirmed Episcopalian. Oh, so that's cool. I'm like, yes, we are we are spearheading the revolution against consumerism. <laughs> or aliens. Well, they're one and the same. You only have one thing for us. Is Mr. Busy over here with all his stuff and life and stuff. Sorry, Jeff. Yeah, that's all right. Well, I watched movies while you were gone. Well, you were sick. You were shut in for a while. I was sick, and I was a shut in for a while. And I checked out something that um, I wouldn't say I was excited to see it last year when I heard it was getting finally released, but I was uh, intrigued. Mm -hmm. Um, Jonathan Levine, who has in uh, recent years become quite the hot little Hollywood director when it comes down to it. Uh, His last movie was Warm Bodies, which I think was kind of a surprise hit. I think it actually did rather well at the box office. Uh, Before that uh, was 50-50, which I know you enjoyed. Loved it. Okay. Um, And then before that, he did The Wackness, which I've wanted to see and I've heard good things about. Yeah, it was a, you know, and that that kind of got him recognized as a Sundance darling. Right, that was kind of about like 90s New York. Yeah, so there's there's a, there's a, a... Tapped into that zeitgeist of like the early '90s music scene too, right, especially right. In, in New York. Well, before all of that, he actually directed his first movie that no one had basically seen outside of I think Sundance. Probably, uh, I think it premiered at Sundance when it was first made. In uh, I think I think it was planned to be released in 2007, and I think actually shot in 2006, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's called All the Boys Love Mandy Lane, and it got a limited theatrical release last year. And then it's kind of a surprise, but kind of a perfect for Netflix type movie, it showed up on Netflix. Uh, Netflix, I think, is cornering the market on 
movies like this mm-hmm. that are like these weird little lost indie releases that you would probably like if you like other movies. Right. Like it's almost like like tr- like just for film buffs, like a whole section of people like we're going to watch these things that are, are random. So um, there's a really great article that I'll post in the show notes about why it took this long to get this movie uh, to theaters. Sometimes when this happens, it's just because it's terrible. Right. Uh, I think Red Dawn was honestly an example of that. They say it was because of the MGM thing, but I think it didn't really wasn't good enough to come out. Yeah. And the MGM thing was a great excuse to not release that movie. Well, and, and there's kind of similarities because MGM, I think, was also hoping to capitalize on Chris Hemsworth, uh, Chris Hemsworth popularity, right. and with all the boys love Mandy Lane. Because <coughs> um, I, I haven't seen it. Is it is it a horror film? Um, I it's I, w- I would say it's like a slasher movie with a little teenage drama mixed in. Okay, but it's you, like the John Hughes slasher movie. But you could see how they they try and then based on the popularity of Warm Bodies, try to capitalize on that. And I, I and Amber Heard's profile has increased since then. She's been in more things. I've heard of her. <laughs> um, no, she's very attractive, and likes to talk about how she is bisexual all the time. I have no problem with that. Anyway, Amber Heard is in this. Uh, she's great. I mean, come on. And she's actually a good actress. Uh, she was the only good thing about Drive Angry 3D, which I actually saw in 3D. Because, oh, I mean, geez. if you're going to see Drive Angry, <laughs> see it in 3D. Um, she was the only good thing about Drive Angry. Uh, she's been in a few other things. Um, she is both attractive and a pretty good actress. So you should seek her out in things. Uh, but she is the... Uh, titled Mandy Lane mm-hmm. of the title. Why should all the boys love her? Well, that's the interesting thing. Uh, the early part of this movie is really interesting in that it does address uh, a common stereotype of teenage-type movies in a fresh kind of way, I think. Um, in, in most teen movies, there's the girl... That's not just the girl for one guy, but she's kind of like the queen bee, and like every guy wants her, right. and she's almost like really, she's almost too comfortable in that role. You know, it's like that's like where her pride comes from. Mm-hmm. Well, this kind of presupposes like, well, what if the girl wasn't really comfortable with that? What if she didn't want to sleep with all the guys, or didn't want to sleep with any of the guys, or just wanted to actually have friends instead of being just a sexual object? Mm-hmm. You know, like a real actual girl might actually want. Right. Um, so there's a, a lot of interesting stuff going on in the beginning with this movie about like what it means to be that objectified as a young teenage girl, hmm. uh, which I really actually liked. Um, but then it quickly becomes like kind of a standard slasher in a lot of ways. I will give the credit to like I can see why this movie, people seeing it at Sundance, would give Jonathan Levine directing jobs because there's some really good kills that are like cringeworthy. And there's uh, some nice character moments and, like, kind of impressionistic RT shots and stuff. that you, you could see why this would make a good real piece, you know? But then where does, where does the slasher element come in? I mean, where where okay. do murders let come me, in? Let me, let me get the basic plot. Okay, so okay. you start out, uh, Mandy Lane's out of school. Um, she's got this best friend of her that happens to be a guy, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy friend is a little jealous, of course, of all of these guys hitting on, her, on his friend. Mandy Lane, and actually, uh, I don't want to give away too much, but this is right in the prologue. He actually convinces uh, this real douchebag jock guy to jump off the roof of his house into a pool Hmm. at a pool party to impress Mandy Lane. Um, 
And of course, what happens is that the guy dies. Like, he, like, totally wipes out and dies. And so, in the movie, she, like, totally writes off her friend. Mm -hmm. And we pick up a little while later. I think it may even be a year later. And she's kind of isolated and decides to go. She gets invited by this kind of dweeby rich guy to go to his family's, like... uh, like Louisiana plantation, basically. It's weird that they would have that, but like basically their country house, mm-hmm. like out in the South Swamp or something, sure. right? And the movie after that is basically the movie you think that you'd see from that setup okay. of people getting killed in that setup. The teenagers start getting picked off. So it's a little bit of a 10 Little Indians type movie. Hmm. Um, as you go through the movie, you A, figure out who the killer is. I do have a problem in that. When you're watching this movie, and this isn't a spoiler, what you think is going to happen largely is what is going to happen. Mm. The person you think is the killer is the killer, and the way they hide it... I don't know if you've seen movies. Like, like they make an attempt to do the thing where they're always in shadow and stuff, but like it's obvious who the killer is going to be from the beginning. Mm. So it's like a little weird and awkward in story way like that. I mean, I'm, I'm um, guessing it's Mandy Lane who's the killer. Well, you kind of gave it away. In that, but listen, the, the, the killer is both her friend from the prologue that convinced the guy to jump off the roof okay. and her. Oh. The big twist is that, oh, she actually doesn't like being a sexualized object and she likes killing all these people. Oh. And that's a very late act thing that happens. It directed well, that sequence with the reveal, mm-hmm. but... The script's not great, and this writer actually hasn't done much since that movie, and Jonathan Levine has gone on to work with other people that I think have given him better material, so you can tell kind of like why maybe this movie wasn't released at the time, but basically it got shuttled around to all these different distributors before landing back with the people that bought it in the first place (laughs) after seven years, because, and this is why I especially wanted to bring it up, because the market had changed, Mm -hmm. And specifically what had changed is video on demand. Because video on demand is doing better than I think most studios thought it would do. Especially for these types of small releases. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I believe the Weinstein... uh, Weinstein. The Weinstein company actually has a brand now just for VOD. Uh, It's something TWC. Hmm. Um, And that offshoot of the Weinstein company, which had originally made this movie and gave it up because they didn't like it... um, Decided to actually release it. Hmm. The funny thing is it actually came down to a feud kind of between the Weinstein brothers. Because Harvey Weinstein saw it at Sundance and liked it. And then he bought it for his brother who runs Dimension, the horror brand. Yeah. And he didn't want it. <laughs> Bob, Bob is the one who, who Bob runs Weinstein. Yeah, Dimension. So yeah, um, I, I definitely think it's worth watching. Especially if you like Jonathan Levine's other movies. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, Definitely flawed, and definitely you could see why people didn't rush to get it into theaters, Mm -hmm. Uh, but worked as a calling card for Jonathan Levine, so I'm sure he's happy he made it. Mm -hmm. Um, And and yeah, definitely inspired in a lot of different uh, ways. And available on Netflix for people who are... Available on Netflix just recently, that's how I watched it. Uh, Also available on many other things, Mm -hmm. Um, The Usual Suspects. It's a. It's not. A, it, I noticed it's not available on iTunes. You you cannot go and purchase this on iTunes. Isn't that weird? Sometimes is, when that happens, we, we kind of we kind of take that for granted. You kind of assume like everything will be purchable yeah. through the iTunes store, and occasionally they'll throw you a, like a curveball, like doop, or it's like, yep, here it is through the Icelandic iTunes store. Right. Um, and how's that going to help you? 
I, I believe that's called Ice Tunes. Uh. <laughs> and before we go on to the next section, because we, uh, we've been going a little long, um, I would like to do a quick hit on Helix. Uh, I've seen the ads for this in the subway. It's hard to not see the ads for this everywhere. Yeah. Um, it's this, a striking ad, though. It's a guy looking over a, a magnifying yeah. glass, or not a magnifying glass, a, a microscope, <coughs> and there's something as though his brains are exploding right, like out the back of Right, like he shot himself head. through the head, basically. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so I'm it, assuming, it, and just because I haven't yeah. seen it, I'm going to throw out a guess here. <laughs> so it's something, some type of scientific discovery which ends up destroying or coming back to bite these people who have discovered it. Absolutely. Yes. Um, okay. When the original press releases about it came out, I was a little scared. I think other people were a little scared that it was basically just the thing as a television series, Uh-oh. which sounds great. No. no, you really wouldn't want that. Not as a series, no. <coughs> well, I mean, if we're doing the thing as like the who is it and who isn't it, that can only last for so long. No, but it's not that, and okay. I was worried that it would be that because it was written in a way. It's like Arctic Research Station. Oh. Weird stuff starts happening. People hmm. start disappearing. Okay. We don't don't know who we can trust. I'm it's really not that movie. Oh. Um, but it's very close in okay. a way that's original. So I, I'm glad that it's not the thing and it's actually something original. Mm-hmm. Um, this is brought to you by Ron Moore, although not created by Ron Moore. I think Battlestar Galactica Ron Moore? Battlestar Galactica Star Trek Ron Moore. Oh. Um, uh, he, I, I believe, has written some episodes and is one of the executive producers, but I think it was created by another writer uh, that he and, and Ron Moore helped develop it and bring it to sci-fi. Because Ron Moore, I guess, can do whatever he wants on sci-fi after Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. Um very interesting in a lot of ways. I would definitely uh, recommend checking out the pilot. The pilot probably tells you everything you need to know about whether or not you're going to like it. And the pilot is free literally everywhere. The pilot is free on services that are always paid services. Like, you can get it on iTunes free. You can get it on Vudu free. You can get it on Hulu, Sci-Fi, like, everywhere. Um, and it's still developing. It's one of those shows where, like, it's got so much on its plate that it could go real bad real quick. Mm-hmm. Like, it could really get bungled. But if they can stick the execution, I think it could be, like, one of the new favorite sci-fi shows that people have. And I believe, uh, like a few other shows, it's a limited series. I think they're only doing 13-episode seasons. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what I felt about the first season, or, or the pilot episode of American Horror Story. It's like, there's right. so much going on here. It could either be awesome, or it could just get out of control. And it went the other way. And it went out of control, yeah, yeah. because what else can you expect from Ryan Murphy? That's <laughs> uh, true. Um, but yeah, so... Free on Sci-Fi, free on Hulu, free on Vudu, free on iTunes. Um, if you're an uh, Xfinity Comcast uh, subscriber, it's free on there as well, yeah. uh, VOD. Um, and then, so also, uh, as we said uh, at the top of the show, we're going to wrap up this section by talking a little bit about some of the stuff that's yes. new to streaming services, new for uh, new for Netflix. Um, we're going to start out with the first two. Um, and granted, there, there's a whole lot of new stuff because, as everyone knows, or we, we posted this on Facebook at least, as of December 31st, they 2013, lost yeah. they lost a whole lot of content. Mm-hmm. Um, but as, as of January 1st, they gained a whole lot of new content. So typically we kind of do what's been new in the past week. We'll expand it a little bit because there's a whole yeah. lot of awesome stuff. Um, two of the most important ones, the most relevant ones, because the Oscar nominations were uh, recently released. Mm-hmm. The Act of Killing, which has uh, been nominated for Best Documentary Features on there. I need to see this movie. And is that, isn't that presented by Werner Herzog or something? I think he's been stewarding that. I don't know, Jeff. I haven't seen it yet. Well, I hear it's presented by him, and um, he likes it. But the act and Errol Morris too. I think Errol oh. Morris and Werner Herzog. If those two guys like a documentary, it's probably a good documentary. <laughs> Come on now, yeah. <laughs> um, 
So the act of killing, uh, I need to see that one. Yeah. The square, which is why Netflix is now um, the Oscar-nominated Oscar Netflix. Yeah. Um, and I hadn't even heard about this one until you told me about this one. I would check out the trailer for it. It looks really great. Uh, it's from the director of, of Control Room, which mm-hmm. is a movie that came out about ten years ago about Al Jazeera. That's also very good, and mm-hmm. I believe is on Netflix. Um, this is about the Egyptian Revolution. It appears to have a much more street-level view of it, which is cool. Because a lot of the stuff we saw the Egyptian Revolution was either, like, pictures on Twitter or, like, people on top of buildings on CNN, mm-hmm. like, looking at stuff and saying, there's stuff happening there. <laughs> but this is, like, street-level, like, people getting attacked, like, people coming after cameras. Like, it's scary. Mm-hmm. So it's probably the type of documentary that, like, will really grip you. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. And now, The Act of Killing, is that Indonesia? Uh, I believe so. Malaysia? The killing is in because it's kind of the killing fields place, right? It's wasn't where, where the killing fields take place. You know the the Jaffe movie. Yeah, Roland Jaffe. Roland Jaffe. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, I'm gonna cut all that out. But um, I've heard good things about it. Um, the Hunt, which I don't know too much about, but right. I know one, it's distributed by Magnolia. Right. Two, it's got Mads Mikkelsen. That's all you have to That's know. All I and need he's to know. on the cover, so you know he's probably in a lot yeah. of it. <laughs> Mads Mikkelsen, of course, is Hannibal Lecter from NBC's excellent Hannibal. And the villain from Casino Royale. And the villain from Casino Royale. You are correct. Yes. Um, the Bicycle Thief. One of the most depressing movies you could ever seen, but also one of the finest examples of the Italian New Realism movement of the yeah. 1950s. And the most easy to digest in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like it's, it's a very traditional movie versus a lot of the other stuff that came out yeah, around it, that era. Certainly so. I remember studying Italian New Realism in film school and I was like, oh, I can get on board with the Bicycle Thieves, not so much La Strada. Yeah. But that's just me. <laughs> um, and, and Idiot Abroad, seasons one through three. Yeah. Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant have this friend named Carl who hates everything and doesn't want to go anywhere. So of course they force him to go to these exotic <laughs> locations and take and it's really good. It's, I really like it's it. It's really funny. And uh, he actually, uh, he was uh, in Dexter with Ricky Gervais. Right. At, and he's actually a really good actor in Dexter. So if you li- saw Dexter and liked it, uh, there you go. You should watch it again abroad. Uh, the Last Stand, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Return to the Big Screen. Yes. Um, I've heard it was... It has moments. Yeah. It's, it's one of those movies that like there's some missed potential, but it's worth it. Mm-hmm. It's worth a watch. Um, Jack Reacher. Um, Chris McQuarrie's a big... Uh, Director, it's not. It's not his first movie. No. As a, a Chris McQuarrie, of course, uh, was the writer of The Usual Suspects, yep. and has been both a big script doctor and screenwriter in New York, uh, in Hollywood. And uh, his his kind of entree into the triple A movie directing was Jack Reacher. I believe he's doing. Is he doing Mission Impossible? I think he might be directing the new yeah, Mission Impossible. So, mm-hmm. so uh, if you want to see what he can do with a big budget and Tom Cruise. Before Mission Impossible, there's Jack Reacher. Um, Hansel and Miller Witch Hunters, feel free to discard that suggestion. <laughs> Jeremy Renner's in it. Um, Paradise, I hadn't heard of this one. Paradise is the movie formerly known as Lamb of God. It's actually uh, Diablo Cody's directorial debut. Uh. See, there you go. Uh, I watched a little bit of it. From what I've been told, the actual the problem with it is it's not enough of a Diablo Cody movie. Hmm. And that she kind of plays it safe. And it doesn't have... I mean, you may find her obnoxious, but it doesn't even try to have that edge to it. So, uh, but if you're interested to see what she does behind the camera, there's Paradise. Um, the Iron Lady, if you want to see how good of a, a Margaret Thatcher impersonation Meryl Streep does. Um, Drinking Buddies, they're actually pushing this pretty hard on the Netflix main page. Yeah, Drinking yeah, Buddies. yeah. I think they're seeing that as a coup that they got there. Um, Morgan Murphy, Irish Goodbye, which is something I hadn't heard of. Jeff, you made a very good point. Uh, yeah, this is one of those things where I think uh, they put this out because of their data. 
And uh, Morgan Murphy, like uh, Nick Thune, who also has a special on there now, uh, is very big on Twitter mm-hmm. and very funny on Twitter. I've, I think I follow her on Twitter. And uh, I watch some special. It's actually really funny. It's really good and low-key. Um, I think you should expect to see more stuff like this on Netflix. Like them pushing kind of internet famous people to do shows. Mm-hmm. Because people who are on the internet usually have Netflix subscriptions. True. So uh, that's the kind of show and special that you know Comedy Central might have not even put out. But Netflix would. Um, As I Lie Dying, I have to admit that I have not heard of this one either. Uh, As I Lie Dying is an adaptation of a William Faulkner novel, uh, which sounds exactly like the thing that uh, James Franco would try to direct, (laughs) having become a professional student. Um, Yeah, I haven't really heard any response to that, but it's on Netflix. So if you want to see James Franco behind the director's (laughs) chair doing pretentious Southern literature from like nearly 100 years ago, uh, there you go. It, it certainly exists, and Netflix can confirm that. Yes. Um, Spaceballs, great, great comedy. Scrooge after Christmas. They yeah, added. after Christmas. Now you can finally watch Scrooge for free. <laughs> um, and then The Keep. Do you uh, know what The Keep is? No. I, I I wanted you to know about The Keep because The Keep is interesting because they got me on the uh, description, mm-hmm. which is basically like uh, a bunch of soldiers find some mystical thing that the Nazis are looking for, like, uh, yeah. I think in a concentration camp or something, okay. has a lot to do with, like, Jewish mysticism and stuff. Uh-huh. This is notable, and I didn't know this till after I added it, okay. this is the second Michael Mann movie. This is in between Thief and Manhunter. Oh, I have heard about this. Yeah, This yeah, has okay. never been released on DVD, because Michael Mann didn't want it released on DVD. Wow. So this is basically, like, this is, again, what I said, like, the kind of thing Netflix is great at. If you want to watch The Keep, you basically need a Netflix subscription. Um... And check it out. It could be cool. There's a lot of good people in it. Wow. So Michael Mann's Shame is here on Netflix. <laughs> exactly. All the world to see. Exactly. Um, so new on Amazon and, and, you know, new on Amazon, new on Vudu, pretty much new on a whole lot of other streaming services. Um, not too much, really, uh, but we got Riddick. Um, if you were really sticking with with, um, with the Vin Diesel series after the Chronicles of Riddick, <laughs> good for you, I guess. But here, here's, here's the third and final one. Um, Lee Daniels, The Butler. Nominated for nothing, basically. Which was a surprise to some. Yeah, um, yeah. Was, a, was a huge Oscar favorite, and then I think 12 Years a Slave came out. Yeah. And then there was another movie that the old rich white people could like, feel really good about. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, modern, uh, the modern remake of Carrie is on there, um, as well as um, new episodes of some of all your favorite shows, Downton Abbey, How I Met Your Mother, Justified yeah. American Horror Story Coven. Um, those are all uh, new on streaming. So we will put all those in the show notes, um, uh, as I said. Um, so I think, uh, but maybe we should just... Uh, we should get on to the, the meat of this meat and potatoes episode, Jeff. Section three, cue the day. Or at least a nice dessert. So here we are. Um, depending on which co-host you like the most, we're either in the meat section or the dessert section of cue the day. <laughs> um, but, uh, and as I said at the top of the show, in this section... We generally kind of want to talk about that idea of, of how or should you separate the artist from their art. Right. Like I said, and I'll, I'll, link, I'll, I'll link to these, these articles in the show notes, but the article that kind of started this discussion, something we wanted to talk about, was uh, The Village Voice um, Revisiting, uh, and the, the title was, Read the Stomach-Churning Sexual Assault Accusations Against R. Kelly in Full. And they are disturbing. And R. Kelly did do those Trapped in the Closet videos, so I consider him a filmmaker. So he is germane to the discussion. There we go. Um... <laughs> But then we also wanted to, we also wanted to discuss it because, uh, like we said, the Golden Globes, Woody Allen was commemorated um, 
Woody Allen has also done some things which are accused of disgusting things and has confirmed some things that are borderline kind of creepy. Oh, yeah. Like marrying his 19-year-old adopted daughter. Yeah. Um, that's weird. Um, so let's just get right into it. I mean, I guess... I, you know, this is like this could be such like a, a an in depth discussion. I'm not even sure really where to start. But it, well, I would say like we usually do a lot of section threes that are like film heavy homework. Mm-hmm. This is actually like a reading heavy section. Yeah, where the, we we're gonna have a lot of articles in the show notes that I think you should look at. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe even read along or read before you get into it. Okay. Because we're about to make value judgments about people. <laughs> and if you want to know whether we're totally off base, you may want to look at what we're basing it on. Yeah. So anyway, um, I want to start with probably the the not least onerous one, but the least icky one. Mm-hmm. Let's not even get into the R. Kelly stuff, because that stuff eats at your soul. Mm-hmm. It's just the inspiration. And we'll leave it at that. And it's really complicated. Right. But it does bring up interesting things in that... And I had seen this mentioned a little bit even before that stuff came out. How people had been upset that a lot of 2013 news outlets and blogs seem to be okay with R. Kelly again. I remember going through a time when people weren't okay with R. Kelly. When, mm-hmm. when the whole, you know, all the allegations about him uh, dealing with underage girls, pissing on underage girls, mm-hmm. uh, stuff that was on video. So it was hard for him to say, oh, people were lying. Um, that did seem to be a, a mark on him for a while. And then I, I have to put it this way. I do think that he found a white audience. I think that the Trapped in the Closet videos became this camp kitsch thing people liked. Yeah. They started running them on IFC. Mm-hmm. And he suddenly, all of a sudden, was like this darling of the blogs again. Uh, which goes to show you that really <laughs> time can heal all wounds, at least as far as your public reputation is yeah. concerned. Um, but uh, this is a great article because because this guy uh, Jim DeRogatis he's got a really complicated name he's actually written some really good stuff about punk music in the past and he followed the whole R Kelly case because it was where he lived and he covered music and I don't think he even wanted to but he covered it mm-hmm. and was basically disgusted and has kind of like been the one guy to say anytime anyone was trying to like bring R Kelly back and said listen guys mm-hmm. well- R Kelly is a monster and. Whatever kind of music he makes, he is a monster. Mm. Um, and, that, anyway. yeah, and that was kind of the point of the article why he, was, right. why he was writing was because R. Kelly has recently put out an album kind of almost disgustingly entitled Black Panties, yeah. which has been really almost overwhelmingly like well-received. Oh, yeah. Um, by, Without irony, yeah, you know? And, and, and his, he was kind of like, guys, wait a minute. Have we forgotten what he did? Right. And, and the reason that he brings this up because... Actually, and and maybe we should even get back to this in a little bit, uh, you know, to kind of raise the the contrast of the contradiction. Right. But um, because yeah, we are a film and TV podcast, so there's no shortage of scumbags who have been working in the realm of film and TV. Right. Um, one that people kind of forget is he's he's talked about as certainly kind of like a dictator on set, right? But. William Friedkin oh, yeah. is a guy, and there's there's what was the article? I there's this article the here, um, you know, from the Guardian. You know, there's a quote he says. And it's an interview. Yeah, if I wasn't a director, I might have become a serial killer. Um, Only sociopaths say things like that. Th- yeah, and th- this is a guy who, if you read, I think it's in, um, I think it's in Peter uh, Biskind's uh, Easy Rider, Raging Bulls, that follows around this whole 1970s new new Hollywood movement. Yeah, um, William Friedkin was once involved in a in a romantic relationship with, I believe, she was um, a Russian dancer or you know ballet right. dancer of some kind. Um, she got pregnant. 
not because of this, but he got upset at her one night, punched her so hard in the gut that she had a miscarriage. So William Friedkin is directly responsible for the death of a child. For the death of a child. That's that's a disgusting human being. Um, and yet, at least, I mean, in the 1970s, sure, there was all sorts of shit going on. There, right. You know, the studio executives were doing coke. Everybody yeah. was coked out of their minds. And, 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 People and it were was, punching fetuses left and right when yeah. it comes down to it. Okay. <laughs> and it was, but it was that rebellious behavior right. that is what drew people back to the movies that brought the money back. Right, and the attitude is in his movies. I mean, I mean, the, the French Connection and Exorcist, part of the reason they feel great is they feel dangerous yeah. because they were dangerous. They, because in French Connection, he actually sent Gene Hackman down a real street at 90 miles an hour. Yeah. And when that car hits him, that was a real car that didn't know they were filming that hit him. <laughs> and there was a guy in there with a camera and Gene Hackman, not a stunt driver, Gene Hackman. <laughs> So he had no problem, you know, mm-hmm. um, putting actors in harm's way, yeah. putting apparently family members and girlfriends in harm's way. Um, and maybe it was, I, I, I think this is a good point to bring it up, like, a lot of times, especially when the douchebaggery is directly connected to the actual act of filmmaking, mm-hmm. it seems to be that I, either people give them a pass or the filmmakers themselves excuse it because it is in the service of making films. Right. And they're even appreciated sometimes for being that dangerous, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and I think Friedkin's a good place to start with that kind of attitude. Right. And, and, and yeah, that's, that's yeah. a very good point because, like, there was, there was an attitude, there was a danger about him, there's a, a fuck you mentality right, right. towards studios, towards everything authority. Absolutely. That, yeah, really made those films great in a way. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the Exorcist, the scene, you know, there's... Everyone knows the story now, but, you know, the scene when Reagan is getting possessed and she smacks her mother and Ellen Bernstein, like, falls backwards and she screams. That's a real scream of pain because he told the guy who was, who was pulling the harness to pull as hard as he could. And to this day, she is still injured because of the injury she suffered on set back in the 1970s. Wow. Um, this is ridiculous. He, and I believe the, um, the scene at the end after Father Karras has tumbled down the stairs yeah. and his colleague is down with him, you know, giving him the last rites. He has this shocked look on his face. Because in order to get that shocked look on his face before the take, he smacked the guy in the face. So his shocked expression is because he's still trying to process the fact that my director just physically assaulted me. <laughs> um, and, 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 and this is why, and this is why this is actually kind of a, a good correlation because yeah. the reason why uh, the guy in the Village Voice wanted to revisit the R. Kelly thing is because. Sometimes it's kind of like he is an asshole, but this work is separate. Ja- I mean, James right. Brown was was you know. Oh yeah, not he was great. known as a huge abuser. Ray, yeah. Ray Charles cheated Ray Charles. on his wife. Yeah, you yeah. know how many times? But even they're... Mozart was apparently a douchebag. Really? Well, at least that's what Amadeus tells us. But who you know? Amadeus is. <laughs> Come on. But is it a little obvious that I will hold too much uh, credence for movies and <laughs> what they tell us about history? Uh, and Mark Zuckerberg had a girlfriend all through the whole creation of Facebook. Oh yeah, so. yeah, and she was incredibly hot. But, um, but there, there's almost kind of a separation of it. Like James right. Brown's songs didn't necessarily celebrate the terrible things he did. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Ray Charles' yeah, songs, yeah. you know, they were kind of connected to something else. Um, but R. Kelly with black panties and a lot of his music it is kind of maybe not celebrating, but almost reveling in the sense that in yeah. his behavior... Even Roman Polanski, you got to give him credit, has not made movies about pedophilia. 
And this is well. That that's that's where the can of worms is open for me. <laughs> right, right. Um, Roman Polanski is a figure, and, and I remember um, the guys at BP did an episode. I think that was somewhat similar to this topic a, a little while back. And I remember yeah. emailing them in, and, and that was the first time I ever emailed them about like, hey, th- these are my thoughts on it. So Roman Polanski, um, if nobody is unaware, yeah. uh, back in the no- in the nineteen seventies. Um, admittedly drugged and raped a 13-year-old girl. Yeah, didn't get set up, didn't deny it. No. This happened. This was not like, oh, she was, you know, maybe 16. No, no, no. She no. was 13. She, he gave her drugs. She said no, and he did it anyway. Right. He was arrested, um, and he was going to be put on trial, but for numbers of reasons, which they try to paint as sympathetic towards Roman Polanski in the documentary Roman he Polanski. He basically says that he was worried about being uh, made an example of. He was worried he was not going to get a fair trial because <laughs> the judge was, was kind of a glory They were dog. going after Hollywood people at the time. So uh, yeah. Roman Polanski Which fearing- is a great excuse to just rape whoever you want. <laughs> I don't know if it was that as much as because he felt felt like he couldn't get a fair trial, right, right. he fleed the country. He has not been back to America since because mm-hmm. the minute he steps foot here, he's going to be arrested. That movie he even made with Ewan McGregor a few years ago, which I think is supposed to take place on Long Island or something. The Ghost Rider. The Ghost Rider was like all shot in Germany. Right. <laughs> so with like American signs put up. So Roman Polanski for the past 30, 40 years has been continuing making films. Right. Won the Oscars for the, for the penis back in 2002. What'd you say? Come on, Jeff. We're both it really that. sounded like that. <laughs> but even if I it know. sounded like it, you knew what I was saying. I, I the pianist. Yes. The pianist. The pianist. That's um, why I always say pianist. Pianist. Actually, that's yeah. actually not a bad idea. Anyway, yeah. um, but he won Best Director for that. Could not come to the country to accept his award. Right. Um, and there has... And so this is this happened a long time ago. Even as of now, the girl who the, the victim uh, has even admitted, like, just drop the charges. I'm not going to. Pr- I'm not going to prosecute him. I'm not going to. Um, Should be noted though that a uh, victims aren't in charge of that decision. Correct. B. There's a reason victims aren't in charge of that decision mm-hmm. because you prosecute offenses like rape not just for the victim. Mm-hmm. You prosecute offenses like rape to keep other people from raping other people. Right. There's, you're supposed to make an example out of people. Mm-hmm. So as much as they make, and they make a lot out of the fact that she doesn't want him to be in prison anymore, right. it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, because it's not this woman. You know, the case is not this woman versus Roman Polanski. Right. It's, it's the state, state of California versus, right. versus Roman Polanski. Right. And there's there's not a statute of limitations on raping underage girls as far so as So what I do know. we do about his movies then? Here's and, and here well no. I can answer what I do about okay. this. And, and this is just this is just for me. Personally. And I'm, yeah. I'm actually curious as to okay. get what your thoughts are on this. Um now I, and let me let me say this by saying I love Chinatown. Oh yeah, Chinatown yeah. is a fantastic film. If you look over, you'll actually be able to see it on my DVD shelf right there on the second. Oh, yeah, yeah. Chinatown in between in I, between. I um, yeah, yeah, Chinatown. Carlito's Way and A Christmas Story is, is Chinatown <laughs> right over there. It's a great triple feature. Um, now I and I actually I bought that DVD before before I knew about like I knew before you had read about it before yeah, I yeah. had read this whole hullabaloo yeah, about yeah. it. Now I truly believe. Roman Polanski has took something from someone, took a freedom from someone that this woman is never going to have again. Yeah. He has lived unencumbered, unhindered. Oh yeah, not coming to America. I mean, that's a pretty that's a pretty America uh, it's a pretty egotistical American idea to think that not being able to come to America is like the biggest punishment a person can have. 
He has plenty lived- of people, billions of people, spend their whole lives without coming to America. <laughs> he's he's lived uh, he's lived in France that didn't yeah. that wouldn't extradite criminals. He's lived in Switzerland. He has gotten married. He has had kids. He's had a family. Yeah, and kept making movies. I, and I'm sure he is. I'm sure he is very regretful of what he did. Right. I, I have no doubts about right. that. But he has not answered for his crimes. Yeah. Justice has not been served. And right. because... And people would feel a lot different if he was a 17-year-old black kid. But yeah, that, that's wrong. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's wrong. And, and it's and it just, in, in my opinion... And I don't mean for this to come off as high and mighty at all. Because I'm not saying that everybody should do this. This is just the one thing I have chosen to do. <laughs> because um, there was a freedom that he took away... And nothing has been taken mm. away from him. Hmm. I have chosen to... I, I have not seen a Roman Polanski film since I first saw Chinatown. I will not go to the theater to see one. I will not rent one. I, I will not buy one. I don't think there's anything one. wrong with that. I refuse to support him because... I would be supporting a freedom that I believe he should not have. Right. Um, it should be noted there are a couple, I believe, documentaries that premiered on Showtime that have been on recently. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the first one... Which apparently was the the documentary that started the whole hubbubaloo of him try, getting arrested again. Mm-hmm. Because literally this documentary, they looked at it and were like, we got to go after this guy. Right. And then there was a follow-up to that that's way too sympathetic to him. Well, where, where she's basically like, I feel bad for making him go to trial. Well, Roman Polanski wanted and desired... Cast right. him in a sympathetic oh, yeah, yeah, light. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and, yeah. You get, and, and you get the idea that, okay... He wasn't going to get an unfair trial, but then I, I believe it was it was either Slate or Solana. I have yeah, to find yeah. this, but the title is something like "Let's Let's Remember, let's remember <laughs> Roman Polanski Raped a Child." Yeah, and there has and I remember a few years ago, kind of being like upset because there was um, oh, yeah. a petition that was saying to the, like you know uh, an, an American petition like let it go, drop the charges. Right, it, it this guy's a great go. artist. Yeah, you he's, know, he's, he's a great too artist. Important in the history of film, and I was like. And how many of our favorite people were it on that list? It was signed by so many people. Martin Scorsese's name was on there. Alfonso Cuaron's name was on there. Of course, Woody Allen's name was on there. Wes Anderson's name. And it was like... And then, and, and I'd read that, and there, when there's part of me thinking, like, yeah, maybe they're right. I'd go back to this article, like, let's not... Let's remember right, right. Roman Polanski raped a child. And then there could be in parentheses, and has not answered for it. And let's also remember how we would feel about this if the guy had not directed great movies. Would yeah. you feel any sympathy for him? And what does that mean? What does that mean for you? Mm-hmm. That you literally think that, oh, this, this achievement outweighs this tragedy. And, and, that, you know? and that's, that's something I never really thought about before. Uh, like, if this was... <laughs> and we, we throw out his name so often, it's like making... If this was Brett Ratner who did this... <laughs> oh, yeah, they'd, they'd hang him. Would there be in an the uproar? square. Yeah, I, I mean, like, so... That was a very good choice of somebody that could have raped a child, by the way. Oh, jeez. Let's not get uh, sued for libel, but that was very funny. But, and so here's a guy where, like, yeah, none of his films even touch on the subject at all. It's, right. not, it's not like he's reveling in this attitude. Absolutely. So his, you could say his deed and his art are completely separate. Sure. But what connects them is the artist who, has a, who contributed to both of them. Yeah. Um, and and, and uh, another thing to be noted, and not as, like, a character attack, but, like, I, I watched that follow-up to the original documentary that has a lot with the, the victim. Um, she seems happy, but she clearly seems different. Mm-hmm. She clearly seems like a bit of an eccentric to the point where, like, I, and I'm not going to talk about anybody's internal motivations, but, like, she's not a normal person. 
And maybe she would have always not been a normal person, but maybe she's not a normal person because of what happened. Well, and, and, th- you know? and, and not just the fact that, that this horrible thing was done to her, but all of a right. sudden she was thrust into a public spotlight because of it. And, and, and kind of made to feel like she had ruined someone's career by being a victim, you know? Which is a little fucked up. <laughs> and, and you got to wonder how much of it, like, listen, let's just drop it, is just so... Is it not because, like, I, I, how much of it is I forgive him and how much of it is... I just don't want this to be a thing anymore. Which I actually think, yeah, from the way she talked, I think it's it's more the latter. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, uh, and I mean, a, a, a kind of a, I don't want to say a, a real life application, but an application of this kind of stuff to to a realm outside of art, let's say. Yeah. Um, and I can't take credit for this one. This one is actually, um, this was, I, I told you off mic, I met a fan of ours. Yes. We do at least have one. Um, but, and she kind of, she... She kind of brought up this example, but let's say you are, you know, you're um, a father with a young kid, right? Um, debilitating condition, and not just like you know, you have to go to like a specialist, yeah. Um, and let's say this specialist is accused, you know, maybe not necessarily arrested, but accused of pedophilia or right. or, or something absolutely awful of of homicide or something. You hate this person as a human being. But this person is so good at something right. that is completely separate from that deed. How do you respond to that? With great difficulty. And, and it is, yeah, and it's, and I mean, <laughs> I had I had a friend who, I, and I, I can't even equate this to like the medical thing to that because like, you know. But I, I had a friend who who raved about Ghostwriter. Like you have to see it. I'm like I'm not going to see it. Right. I'm not going to see any movies he sees. I actually saw Ghostwriter because I watched it by accident mm-hmm. on on demand without knowing it was Roman Polanski. Oh really? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But... So that's the only way I was able comfortable to watch a Roman Polanski movie is by accident. So, but and I mean I have to. This can be a you know an open question for viewers, but I mean to you hearing what I just said, am I even hypocritical for even still hanging on to Chinatown? No, I don't. I don't think so because because it, it is a movie that was important to you before a time when mm-hmm. you knew certain things, and uh, and also like why should Robert Town, one of the great screenwriters, take a hit because Polanski was a douchebag, <laughs> you know? So so ha- own it for Robert Town. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, you know, uh, Roman Polanski gets cut up in that movie, doesn't he? No, no, he, no, he, he cuts holds Jack the knife. Nicholson. Yeah, yeah. So even he's even inflicting harm on Jack Nicholson. Also, um, the deed did occur in Jack Nicholson's house while Jack Nicholson was out shooting somewhere. So it's not as though he knew, but the deed was yeah. in Jack Nicholson's house. Um, another, another, let's say, more extreme example. And this is why we wanted to have Gavin on from KGB Cast because he mentioned this actually on a recent episode. Yeah, um, John Landis, who everybody knows and loves because of American Werewolf in London, because of Blues Brothers. Blues Brothers is one of Animal House. Animal House. Blues Brothers is a, a huge movie for me. Still love it. Yeah, um, John Landis was um, one of the directors involved with the Twilight Zone movie. Yes, in the, the anthology series uh, that I believe Steven Spielberg spearheaded. Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't know who the other director was. There were three, I believe. Uh, I believe... Was it Joe Dante? Joe Dante, I think, did the one with the kid. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, But John Landis was in charge of of a story uh, with uh, this old, gruff soldier guy played by an actor, Vic Morrow. Um, It actually seems like a really interesting story, by the way. It it does. It would have been a good sequence. It's it's something like he was... um, 
He was a very bigoted guy. Right. Um, was kind of didn't really have a body swap, but one you know, it's like a quantum leap. Yeah, it was essentially one of those things. He was put in the life of somebody else to kind of see it for their eyes. And I think a few different periods. Yeah. Like I think he went through the like the Holocaust, mm-hmm. and then from the side of the, the of the persecuted. Exactly, and then the notable event. Uh, is that he went through the Vietnam War. Vietnam War. And, and there this was, is where our story begins. This is, uh, and there was a sequence where there was these two young kids, um, and, and, and you know, he, was, he was rescuing them. He was, right. he was saving them from the... And so it was, it was a nighttime scene. There was pyrotechnics. There was a helicopter. There was explosions. They were working um, long hours, that well past the hours that an underage child should have been working. Yeah. Um, and essentially, and we're basically like picked off the street. Like they they weren't yeah. going through an agency. Like it was literally like they found them. They were just local kids that were, you know yeah, paid yeah, yeah. paid in cash, paid to cash to the yeah, parents. Yeah, yeah. Um, and John Landis was you know screaming out for more and more and all this kind of stuff. And more and, explosions, and, faster, bigger. Yeah. And what essentially happened was as as Vic Morrow and these two kids are trudging through this water scene, a pyrotechnic goes off too close to the helicopter. The helicopter crash lands. Immediately killing Vic Moore on these two kids. Um, one of the kids is crushed by the helicopter. Vic Moore and the, and the other kid are actually cut to pieces by the rotor yeah. on the helicopter. So, what happened? I believe with the um, and you you can look this up on the true crime, uh, true TV crime library. We'll link it's this an in the show notes. Extensive article about it. Yeah. Um, what ended up happening was essentially what it came down to. It seemed like was it was not one person's fault. So nobody was really. Prosecuted, and or they, everyone was prosecuted, but nobody was really held responsible in a way. I think an important element to remember in all this is that um, this was in the eighties, mm-hmm. um, in the height of the eighties, and um, in Hollywood. I don't know about Hollywood today. Maybe they've moved on to other things, but everyone was doing coke in Hollywood at this period. Like everyone, mm-hmm. like literally, like there's a video out there that's amazing. Of Steven Spielberg in a room with like Andy Warhol and somebody else, oh, yeah. and they're clearly coked out of their heads, yeah. right? Like America's filmmaking dad, Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and from what I've been told, John Landis was known to be a particularly avid user even during filming, mm-hmm. so, which some people weren't, right? Especially directors who have to be responsible for things, right? Um, it, it seems when you read, especially the True TV article about it. That John Landis really doesn't feel responsible for any of this. And, and he feels bad about it, but he doesn't feel responsible for it, and he almost doesn't see how he could be responsible for it. And, and when, the, when it came to trial, it did seem like everyone was pointing the fingers at somebody else. Right. I think, um, you know, uh, John Landis was kind of pointing the finger at, if not the helicopter guy, then the pyrotechnics guy. The helicopter pilot was pointing right. the finger at the pyrotechnics guy. The pyrotechnics guy was saying, oh, yeah, like, I yeah. didn't hear the cues. Yeah, and the kids were inexperienced, and so they were talking to the casting people and the, the, the babysitters or whatever they have on set, the, you know. Yeah, and, and, and so it was essentially this, this giant runaround of like, no, it was this person's fault, it was this person's fault. Here's where this doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Anything, you know, a, a movie is shot, completed, wrapped up. Like, let's just say um, um, the recently released The Legend of Hercules, which was terrible. <laughs> um, whether, he has, whether he has direct control over it or not, Rennie Harlan is going to take a whole lot of the flack for that movie being mm-hmm. made. He didn't write the script, yes. He was not the lead actor, yes. He was not the DP, yes. But being the director, he yeah. is in charge and overseeing of every element of that production. Right. 
John Landis so follows that. Yeah. John Landis may not have set off the pyrotechnics. He may not have been flying the helicopter, but he is the captain of that entire shoot. And under his watch, three people died. If you're going to be the auteur, you're going to be the auteur, right? You that, know? That, exactly. Yeah. So now that's a really interesting perspective that I hadn't quite thought of before. And so now this is not now. I mean, God, rape is it's a fucking atrocious act. Right. Three people are dead. They don't even have the chance to Yeah, not live. quite like mechanical decapitation. That's that's a totally different horror show. They're all horror shows. This is the different horror show? <laughs> and and so it's like okay, so the 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 freedom that you denied these people was to live the rest of their lives. Right. Why should he be allowed mm. to continue in the luxurious and legendary path of making films. Here's why I find this case easier to deal with than Roman Polanski. Mm-hmm. We don't have to do as much about it because John Landis hasn't made much of note since like the 80s. That's true. And and no, I, I really mean, and I'm not trying to be flippant. Like really, it's harder in cases where you're still interested in supporting someone's career and what they're doing. Yeah. I like, as, as, as someone else brought up, I, I think it was actually, I, I think uh, Gavin was talking about this, like, He's really great in documentaries. Mm-hmm. Like, John Landis apparently will sit for any documentary about yep, filmmaking. Absolutely. He's in, like, every one. Especially horror films. Especially horror films. I think he's in that screenwriting, page to screen or whatever documentary, too. He's in a lot of them. And he comes across as extremely affable, right? Mm-hmm. So that makes it hard, too, right? But for the most part, his film output hasn't almost been, like, the focus of his career. Mm-hmm. Or at least he's moved back a little bit or hasn't found funding. Who knows? So I do find it a little easier to deal with him in that I don't have to actively make that call. You know what I mean? I, no, I see but I still saying. have to watch the Blues Brothers, which was hugely important to me as a kid and that my brother loved and I loved, and, and feel like... It's, it, it's, that one's hard, too, because like you watch the Blues Brothers, and the Blues Brothers, like we were talking about, like French Connection, like that's a movie where like they didn't speed up the film. They just drove 90 miles an hour down Lower Wacker Drive, you know, okay. where they filmed... Dark Knight, you know, mm-hmm. um, that's a, a that's a movie where they threw practical resources at things right. to make a big movie, and you could see how even on that movie people could have gotten hurt. Yeah, so it's hard for me to reconcile my appreciation for doing it real and even putting people at risk to what would happen if someone got hurt. Mm-hmm. So it's like a very thin line, especially in this age where we're talking about you know practical versus digital and this and that, like. Yeah. Uh, who knows? Maybe the way he was shooting that helicopter thing, if people hadn't died, it might have been the best helicopter sequence you ever saw. It, I'm, I'm serious. Like, it might have been, like, extremely visceral because of how dangerous it was. But it remains that it was incredibly dangerous and killed people. Right. And, 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 it, and he has some responsibility in that because he framed the fucking shot. He knew where he wanted the helicopter. He told them where to put the helicopter. Mm-hmm. And it didn't work out. You know? And... and you know, everything I hear about modern filmmaking is, like, obsessed with safety yeah. because of how worried they are about getting sued mm-hmm. and because of how worried they are about bad PR. So very, like, it happens time and time. You'll hear about a stuntman dying or getting really hurt, but, but like, you don't hear about this kind of accident. And certainly, you know? and certainly after that, there was a whole lot of things that were changed in the industry in mm-hmm. regards to especially child labor laws and safety things and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still that idea of, like, this guy is. This guy is, is. Is even if John Lindis, like you know, 
was a you know became a garbage man or like a waiter at Denny's. That's something that those three people will never have the chance to do. Never, because they're not alive anymore because of something that he was overseeing. And I just and I mean, yeah, it's it's weird. It's easy to make it sound flippant. Like you're right, but it's just. It's not an active choice you have to make because right. John Lennon has kind of fallen out of the public spotlight. Yeah. But then let's say let's say this. Um, let's say you one day meet his son Max Landis and he's like whose work I appreciate. Yeah. Like I was a big fan of Chronicle and I like his attitude about like kind of making those kinds of movies. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like and so one day you're hanging out with Max and you know you go back home. And it's like hey here's meet my dad John. And it's like fuck man you killed three people. <laughs> But here's the thing, and, and like, like I understand that in our heads that sounds like some scenario that we'd have trouble with. I would have no problem shaking John Landis's hand. Right. Because I'm a human being sure. who likes things, and I'm also not at all as intellectually consistent as I'd like to think I am. Sure. And that's, that's the problem I find with that, all this. And, and like I do think it's something we have to keep be conscious of, is like we're seeing very public people in their very public worst moments. Mm-hmm. I am sure... That if people knew the worst things about us, they might not want to shake our hands too. Yeah, and I, <laughs> and, and I know I'm not saying we've done anything close to this, but you know what I mean. No. Everybody has everybody has a darkness to them that comes out. Unfortunately, when you're a film director, it can come out on a huge scale, and you even work in a huge scale and think in a huge scale. So it, it's tough for me to really hold a line on some of these things. Um, that being said, I can I can still be made uncomfortable by it. I don't think it's unfair to be uncomfortable. Yeah, you know? and I, I don't want to make it seem as though we're condemning these people either. No, no. I mean, we're coming at this from like a from a moral high ground. Because no, it's like this is this these are things that are complicated as people who watch movies. Yeah, you know, but it, it is the question that these people live these people live in the public eye. Oh yeah, and so everything that they do is is well documented for us, and so it, it is easy for us to sit here and say this and to say that. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know how Roman Polanski personally felt, you know, after he did all these things. I don't know how John Lennis. No, John Lennis could have been close to suicide for weeks, for months. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, we don't know. Um, but it, it is just that thing of. How... I would have felt better though mm-hmm. if either he had to pay someone a lot of money or was in jail for a little bit and now was out. Right. I'll put it that way. Yeah. I, I would have absolutely felt better about that. So, or, or at least. Taken some acknowledge that yes, he had he played a part, he had a responsibility that like this is yeah, this is something I did and I regret, right? right absolutely. Um, because you know, just as much as it doesn't matter, you know, it, it doesn't matter if we condemn them, it doesn't really matter. It also, in a way, it doesn't matter, it only matters to us if we forgive these people, too. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, they, they why would they care why about would us? They care? Um, can we kind of end on a lighter note, though? Yeah, I mean, yeah this this has been a this has been a this is real draining, Jim. Kind of a downer. Um, this one is easier to be uh, have a moral high ground about because it's it's not at all as about a serious topic. Um, this came up a few months ago, uh, and uh, we will point you to the film drunk article. Spike Lee was spectacularly unhelpful to old boys allegedly plagiarized poster artist. Mm-hmm. Um, so. There's the serious things you can have trouble dealing with when it comes to your favorite filmmakers. And then there's people that just kind of strike you as douchebags. You know what I mean? Like, really. Like, there's the people you're like, I really like your artwork, but every time I hear, like, words come out of your mouth about things that have nothing to do with film or whatever, like, you irritate me, you know? 
Um, uh, in this case, we might be talking about Spike Lee <laughs> as one of those people. Um, there are other people, too. I'm not going to single him out. I'm not going to say he's the only guy who has ever been a director that's said weird statements about things. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, the backstory here is, if you didn't catch this, uh, a poster artist who's actually done some really cool work and worked on a few big movies... Um, basically uh, made the poor decision in his case of working for free almost without a contract for an ad agency that was in charge of promoting Old Boy. Mm-hmm. And what a great job they did because that movie made no money. So, <laughs> so that's the first case. I don't think that ad agency is getting hired for anything ever again. Um, so when it comes down to it, they basically ripped off his poster design yeah. that he got no money for. Yeah, after they, they kept asking for more... More in, revisions. In most, and, yeah, yeah. In, in most horrific design <laughs> stories, they kept asking for more and more. He's like, right. you're not paying me, so no. No, and then what they did is basically, like, they got someone else to Photoshop the poster the same way he did. Yeah. Just slightly different, yeah. you know, uh, with, with the actual key art from... Uh, with uh, Josh, whatever his name is. Brolin. Brolin. Um... But what apparently pissed off this guy more than that is on Spike Lee's Facebook page, which is actually quite popular. He has a lot of followers on Facebook. Yeah. He posted basically all this guy's concepts <laughs> from Old Boy, yeah. and to make things worse, wrote copyright Spike Lee on the bottom, I believe, in the <laughs> caption. <laughs> so this guy, after Spike Lee and his ad agency have done very public things mm-hmm. with his art, Decided to write a public letter to him. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand, like, I, I, I've always thought that the politics of the public letter or open letter were a little weird. Yeah. Because you are kind of saying, like, well, I'm writing to you, but I'm also writing to everybody to put pressure on you. Yeah, yeah. It's, so not, it, it's, it's not for that person. No. It's for the public. It's for the public more than it really is for the person. Yeah. So he wrote this letter that a lot of people posted around, and, and I, I, I did feel for him, especially because I, I think he's, like, a young father with a family who needed the money. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was basically like, come on, Spike Lee, you have a lot of power. Can you help me out with this? And Spike Lee came back with, like, the worst answers possible. Yeah. And, and a few of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, first kind of started out, like, uh, I, I, I don't even want to find the tweets because, I'd like, like it, believe me, paraphrasing them badly will be less painful. Well, <laughs> I think at first he, he tried to be kind of standoffish in the sense of, like, I don't even know who this person is. I don't know is, who this so person is. I've never met up. him. You made this public. Yeah. Right. Uh, so why did you do that? You, I don't know who you are. And then when people, but the funny thing was because it's the new internet where lynch mobs happen all the time, people kept going after his Facebook and his Twitter and then his Instagram. On Instagram, he got so pissed that he said something like, why are you guys trying to ruin my Thanksgiving? Or I I forgot what it was, but it was really funny how tone deaf it was. Because typically in other cases I've seen where there's like an open letter type situation, uh, the person being written to or being addressed or whatever uses it as an excuse for like some good PR because yeah. it's usually not a hard request to get to the bottom of, well, you know. And, and and instead of doing that, he was kind of like, "Well, I'm being attacked, so in great spikely fashion, I'm going to be hugely victimized about this and act like this is all happening to me." And this is coming from someone myself who has been, like, a pretty big fan of a lot of Spike Lee movies. Like, we've talked before about, like, 25th Hour gets brought up a lot as one of the top films of the... Two, uh, was it the 2000s or the oh, 90s? of the last decade. Of really? the last decade, yeah. Um, and, and I think it totally deserves the, that acclaim. Uh, I, I like a lot of the modern Lee stuff and the classic do stuff. Do the Right Thing is right over there. You've got Do the Right Thing. So it's like, here's a guy. I clearly like his stuff. And more than that... Um, 
like me growing up uh, in New York, like wanting to get into film, like Spike Lee was an idol for every kid in New York who wanted to go to film because he was like the NYU guy. Yeah. He was the guy. He went to NYU Tisch and he brought huge respect to that program after graduating uh, and doing so much for independent film. So like every part of me wants to support him when even when he says really stupid things. And yet this time I was kind of like, wow. And I remember telling you this. I think you tweeted it. I was like, maybe he's just a douchebag. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, and this one, this situation is a, a little bit different because it almost kind of seems like, like you said, with the policy of the open letter, yeah. it wasn't so much this guy was writing this, so he's like, Spike Lee, what do you <coughs> do? Because I think this guy generally believed like Spike Lee wasn't really involved with what the advertising industry was doing, but he was like, hey, Spike Lee, can you? Do something about this, right. or at least you know, recognize what's yeah. going on. Yeah. So it wasn't like, "Hey, Spike Lee, you asshole!" It was, "Hey, Spike, can you help me out and be an right. ally in this kind of thing?" Right. Not like I'm trying to call you out and make you look bad. Yeah, which makes sense because you have to believe probably that during this whole thing, I would like to believe that Spike Lee wasn't involved from the get go in the sense oh, no, that you know, no. you know, he probably. But does- that, but in 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 some ways that's worse because he just put it up on the page or his intern did or whatever, and he thought there was no problem with it. Mm-hmm. And he didn't seem to care when it was brought to his attention that, oh, we don't actually own this art. (laughs) Like, that was made for us specifically. Mm -hmm. And when confronted with that information, because people are being kind of mean to me about it, I'm going to act like you ruined my Thanksgiving. Like, what a weird, weird reaction to things. And And he didn't do himself any favors with... um, uh, the uh, uh, the Kickstarter he did too, which I believe I think failed or didn't, yeah, or, or like really was uh, not very successful. There was even articles going around that like famous people like Steven Soderbergh and others were basically trying to make it look good by putting in like sixty grand, hundred yeah. grand. Mm-hmm. So like he's had a rough time in the media. So I, I could understand why he feels victimized, but like he's a guy that at this point, and I think he's mo- he he's very much knows who he is now. So he he's not the kind of guy that's going to change. Mm-hmm. He's the kind of guy that, like, is just, I think, going to keep on putting his foot in his mouth about stuff like this. And this this whole topic in general is so tricky because there's so much gray area. I mean, we can, oh, even, yeah. we can even step it back uh, another degree to the yeah. sense of, like, Stanley Kubrick. Stanley mm-hmm. Kubrick was never a guy that really, you know, that probably didn't commit any crimes as, lo- as long as we know. Oh. Um, when there was a huge outcry over uh, A Clockwork Orange and he got death threats, he tried to buy up all the copies to, to, to you know to protect his family, but was a guy that was notorious for being just the worst director on set, just a a dictator, a slave driver. James Cameron is the same way. James Cameron, I've heard people talk about how he's... Michael Bay. Yeah, like, and so, I guess where do we draw the line, or can we draw the line? Do, Do we have to kind of live with a certain sense of being hypocritical, or just kind of finally decide, like, listen, they're is a separation between the art and the artist unless it comes out, you know, yeah, uh, you know. No, I know what you mean. It's, it's tough. I, I mean, I don't even really know how to, how to put like a, a My advice, my really advice for it is if you're the kind of person that loves movies but doesn't have to read about them, doesn't have to know who directed them, that kind of like film fan mm-hmm. who just likes movies... And and is a low information film fan. Right. Stay that way. Because yeah, in most cases, like there are a few cases where the more you learn about a director, you're like, oh wow, you're really cool. I'm gotta have that perspective. In a lot of cases, I would say like the majority, learning more about like the personal tastes and opinions of the people who make the stuff you like does you no favors. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, and because I mean, 
this this is directed towards such a small minority anyway. Oh yeah, this is not the whole filmmaking community. No, you know? so these are just some people that, and I, I think these are people that rub us the wrong way, especially because they're people whose films we've enjoyed greatly. Yeah. You know, so anyway. I did tell you when you came up with this idea and we were talking about it, like, let's start out the year with a good downer. <laughs> yeah, hope, ladies and gentlemen, hopefully this is no indication of how Q the Day is going to go for the no. rest of the year. Um, and this is actually a little different because typically we do uh, really groups of movies, so this is a little different, uh, but we figured, you know, it's good to have a cleanse. Yeah. And I think this is the topic, I think we've had this topic in some ways in the back burner, Yeah. and we've talked about issues around it, mm-hmm. so uh, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad we got rid of it. Yeah. Um, but and also just want, and we'll never talk about it again. Yeah, and I also do want to reiterate once again this this episode was not meant for us to kind of publicly condemn anyone. Oh, no, no, to no. make it seem like we have answers or, or we're high and mighty. No, no. I, was, I think it was more about us. It's more about our discomfort with how we watch things. It's sometimes. tough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't even, yeah, I don't, I don't even, even know. know I don't even know how to put it here on this, but um, I will say thanks. Let's just, Tell people where things are. Yeah, and I, I will say thanks. It was um, Sarah was the name of our fan who gave me that that medical Excellent. correlation. So thank you, Sarah. Um, and yeah, if um, if you have not been discouraged by this episode and would like to continue listening to Q right. the Day, certainly once again, like I said, um, I promise to probably not have the flu next time. So yeah. I'll be a little less fever dreamy. Jeff, has, I've been on a lot of cold medicine. Jeff has coughed up exactly three and a half lungs, and I've means, ate a whole plate of street meat while we were making. Which I'm not even explaining what the street meat is, so people can think whatever they want. Um, which means that Jeff has sometime in the past couple weeks ingested more lungs than he had just to cough them up during this recording. Very appropriate. But. Um, I promise you in the next episode there will not be coughing. There will not be. Sh- no, nope. I, I can't promise there won't be street meat in the next episode. No, I probably won't eat next time. But, I had a busy day. But we certainly I hope that to. you tune into the next episode. Yes. Once again, qtdpodcast.com mm-hmm. where you can listen to past show episodes. Notes. You can look on the show notes. You can click on all the streaming services. Click on read along all these articles. And we had a lot of articles this time, so you're, you're going to want to read along at home. Absolutely. Um, Facebook.com slash Q the day. Yes. Twitter.com slash Q the day. And uh, Jeff, one more time, um, our email address is uh, Jeff and Jim at QTDpodcast.com. Yes, Geoff and Jim, G-E-O-F- if you're being about it. I'm, I'm go- I'll spell it out in case you people don't know how to spell. G E O F F A N D J I M at QTDpodcast.com. I'm glad you did that because I wanted to find the. Uh... It gave, yeah, gave you ample time to scroll through your phone and try See, to See, I could have not brought it up, too, but now it's not seamless. And our phone number for voicemails and such is uh, 347-774-1783 or 347-774-1QTD. I like that. So, uh, yeah. Um, and unfortunately, that, while it could be, is does not forward to either of our cell phones because that would be annoying. So that is just a voicemail box. Okay, um, um, but yeah. certainly uh, this is one. This is one I would actually like to hear from people who are oh, listening yeah. to this. Um, and, and you know, if you're shy, that's fine too. Um, but if if you want to do any one of those things to respond to us, uh, I would say that my number one favorite thing to do is for people to comment on things on Facebook. Absolutely, just because it's very easy to engage with people there for both of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, or tweet it out, or send us voicemails. Maybe we'll. Be forced to come back to this because we'll play some voicemails. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, but um, well, happy New Year, Jim. Happy New Year to you, Jeff. I'm gonna go home and go to bed. All right. It's quite late. I'm gonna stay here because it's my apartment. Oh, I love throwing that in my face. Sure do. Happy trails, Jeff. <laughs>
the accent, man. Jeff, I guess even if they also have the accent, it still works. If you had an accent and a beard, Jeff, you'd be a double threat. Yeah, now I'm a negative threat. <laughs> <laughs> now you're just a threat to public health and safety. That's right.